This episode, Justice League International number 10, cover dated February 1988. Tenth episode of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and each month this show features a different guest host. Well, folks, this month I am thrilled to announce that my co-host is an actual, real live comics professional human-like person. He worked for Marvel on books like the All New Ultimates and is currently writing and drawing his creator-owned series, Copra. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Michelle Fife. Welcome to the Embassy, Michelle. Thanks for being here. Hey, Shaq. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. I'm so excited. This is really huge. I mean, this is, you're our first comics professional on the show. I've, I've really been looking forward to your visit to the embassy. And then I realized that you're a fan of Millennium. So, uh, oh yeah. I, I suppose we can't win them all. And I wonder if it's too late to get Rob <laughs> Liefeld instead or something. Hmm. Oh, we should get Rob Liefeld on the line. I could call him up. Uh, if you've got his digits, that, that might work out better. I mean, if you like Millennium, I don't know how this is really going to go. Dude, I bet you he's a Millennium fan, too. He's definitely into Millennium. <laughs> and, he, and if he's not, then he will be by the end of this episode. All right. I guarantee it. I look, for, oh, yeah. I look forward to you convincing me. Let's do it. Well, before we get started here, why don't you tell the folks at home some of the stuff you've been working on? So you, you've got your creator-owned series, Copra, right? Right, right. Yeah, I just finished the latest issue. I'm about to press send to the printer, so it's another 24 pages that I got done. So now I'm just kind of reeling from that. You know, I'm buzzing with excitement, and I'm glad that I'm spending my time off talking about one of the greatest single issues ever. But yeah, Copra is my serialized action comic, which, like you mentioned, I write, draw, Hand letter, hand color, self-publish. I stuff the envelopes myself. I mail them out to readers, and I'm up to issue 28. So, wow, that's awesome, man. Yeah, Copra's basically a team book. It's it's it follows the adventures of a revenge-driven pack of weirdo misfit black op dudes and gals. It started out unabashedly inspired by John Ostrander and Luke McDonald's Suicide Squad. So that's kind of. That's the blueprint, but since it has sort of morphed into its own brutal story, you know, uh, I got all different types of characters in there, all different feels, all different approaches to the stories. But it's my serialized comic, you know, I try to, I try to do an entire issue. Uh, every four to six weeks, you know. So so far, so good. That's awesome. I, I picked up the first six issues myself. I'm about halfway through reading them right now, and it's definitely got that sort of Ostrander McDonald vibe for Suicide Squad. But mm-hmm. also, I would say, like you know, and that's the protagonist. I would say the antagonists feel like for me, there's sort of an echo of uh, Morrison's Doom Patrol. It's really cool, very interesting stuff. I'm really enjoying it. Oh, thanks. Thanks for picking it up. I hope other folks listening to the podcast give it a try. And uh, we're gonna tell you in just a second, folks, where you can find yourself a copy. But before we do that, Michelle, you're here to defend. Millennium, is that right? That's right. It's funny because you guys always talk about Millennium and you hate it. And I just, that was a surprise to me. I thought everyone in the world just loved this as much as I did. So. <laughs> I, I knew You're that an we island were, unto yourself, sir. Well, you know, we're talking. Well, we were talking about maybe having me on as a guest, and hopefully, I won't be the last comics creator that you have on. I thought, well, this issue's perfect because it was one of my first issues, and I love this issue to death. And it's also Millennium crossover, so it's pretty damn near perfect. Well, I think any future uh, creator that may be on the show is going to hear that you like defend a Millennium, and they may think twice about coming on here because maybe I'll pull them on here to defend Genesis or something next. I don't know. We'll see. No, no, nobody likes Genesis. <laughs> 
that's where I draw the line. And come on, you got you got to support these the underdog. You know, I mean, you gotta you know whatever you like, you gotta defend it. And that's what I'm here to do. So let's do it. I, I understand your position perfectly. I was just on a podcast recently defending uh, Final Night. I, I love that story, and uh, there there are good ones out there. This one, Millennium, doesn't happen to be one, and you're probably mistaken. <laughs> but hey, you know what? It'll be fun for the folks at home to laugh and point at you. So sure, right? Yeah, we have to distract the folks, you know. <laughs> Well, before we get too much further, we should take a second to thank our sponsor, folks. This episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode of the show, we're going to pick an item from the InStock library that is somewhat related to this episode. In fact, this time, I have picked the Millennium Trade Paperback. Yes, folks, they have collected this gem. Um, it collects all eight <laughs> issues of the 1988 miniseries, uh, the Guardians of the Universe have left our dimension behind, and in their absence, the deadly robotic army of the Manhunters threaten the survival of the DC Universe. And what it doesn't tell you in, this, in the little blurb here is you get the new Guardians out of it, too! It's a, it's a win-win for everyone. <laughs> Written by Steve Englehart, art by Joe Staten, Ian Gibson, and others, cover art by Joe Staten and Mark Farmer, page count is 192 pages, full color, normally retails for $19.99, but you can get it 45% off, so it's only going to cost you $10.99, and if you have to buy Millennium, that's probably the best way to get it, unless you get it in the quarter bin. Now, Michelle, normally I ask the guest if they happen to bring an in-stock trade recommendation. Did you happen to bring one? Actually, yes, I did, and uh, I figured, you know, in the spirit of cosmic stories that repurpose old concepts to fit modern times, the book I'd like to throw in the ring is uh, The Twilight Trade Paperback. Oh, and that's, you know, the Howard Chaikin, mm-hmm. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, name, collects the three issues. It was a mini series in 1990, a sci-fi mini. You know, it tells the story of how one of the Star Rovers became a living god when he was caught in an explosion with a race of immortal creatures. It's up to the renegade hero, Tommy tomorrow to stop his former ally. But he ends up absorbing godlike powers and becomes a jerk and an all-powerful tyrant himself. And it's, you know, typical Chaikin. And it features awesomely depraved versions of Star Hawkins, Manhunter 26. 70, Space Cabbie, and tons more. <laughs> DC's the publisher. Super, super sharp script by Howard Chaikin. I mean, it's great. It's such a good script. But it's also, you know, accompanied by the awesomely designed, beautifully rendered Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Crazy his name. name. Full color by Steve Olaf. Letters by longtime Chaikin collaborator Ken Bruzenak. And that's 168 pages of an awesome comic book that, you know, it used to be fourteen ninety nine. But at this price, it's eight twenty-four. That's eight dollars and twenty-four cents. You save forty-five percent off. That's amazing. I didn't even realize they collected that. In fact, by the way, right now there is a listener by the name of Dr. Ange who is writing an angry tweet before you even finish reading that uh, description, because I own this miniseries and it's sitting on my bookshelf right next to my desk, and I've had it there for about four years, and I've been oh. meaning to read it, and I haven't oh. read it yet. And I'm a huge. I love the sci-fi stuff. Like, in fact, just recently I read the uh, Tomorrow's Silver Age Sci-Fi Companion, which mm-hmm. talks about all of those characters. And I just, I, I love this stuff. And I'm kicking myself that I haven't got on my button read that trade or my, I have the issues, but uh, right. definitely, definitely looking forward to diving in that. Now this reminds me of it, and I think I will try and do that this weekend. Is it just too daunting? Because I, I know sometimes you get certain books that you feel like you need to read and you want to read, but they're just that you know the pile just grows and grows. So is that the thing for you? It just kind of you don't have a good time time to kind of dive in because you know it's going to be a big massive storyline time is time is a big factor because one is because i'm old and i sit down and, start <laughs> right. and, I fall as- and i fall asleep that's what happens to old people so you kids at home just be warned it will happen to you too if <laughs> you're like sharks you stop moving you die and then mm-hmm. the other is you know just being staying caught up for podcasts honestly <laughs> i gotta sure. record this show i gotta read this one i gotta do this one so 
Well, there is one more book I wanted to promote, and because you are too polite to do it yourself, sir, I want to mention over in In Stock Trades, folks, you can get Copra Round 1 Trade Paperback Volume 1. And uh, here's the description. I love this. They're ugly, they're mean, but up until today, they've always been loyal. So when one of their own betrays them, the men and women of Copra have no choice but to turn their nightmare scales back on everyone who ever looked at them funny. And this collects the first six issues of Michelle's work that he's been talking about here. It's 160 pages. Normally retails for $19.95. You can get it 25% off, so only $14.96. What? What's that? No. <laughs> I was just surprised at that. That's pretty cheap. That's a bargain. Yeah, it's a heck of a bargain. So $14.96, folks, for the first six issues of Copra. So go out there and get it from InStock Trades. And then go up to the Contact Us button and let them know you heard about it from the Firewater Podcast Network. And shoot off an email to Michelle and let them know how much you enjoy it. So for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. All right, folks, as we talk about Justice League International number 10, specifically Millennium Week 5, uh, on the social media, please let us know what you think about this issue or the Millennium Crossover, or if you just want to make fun of Michelle's name, whatever you want to do. Uh, it's on, on, the, <laughs> on the social medias, please use the hashtag PoundFWPodcasts. You can find us uh, at the at symbol JLI Podcast. You can find us on Facebook as Just Like International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. Michelle, where can they find you on your uh, Facebook and Twitter? What are your handles? It's basically my name, you okay. know, as, as long as you guys don't make fun of it offhand. <laughs> you can find it. It's M-I-C-H-E-L. F-I-F-I-F-E, and then you could proceed to annihilate my name however you see fit. On Facebook, on Twitter, I have an Instagram. You could look me up there. Uh, I have a website, you know, just myname.com, and it, you know, it should direct everyone to wherever, plat- whatever platform they use. Perfect. So he, they can find you on Tinder and Grinder and all that as well. Okay. Specifically there, yeah, both of them. <laughs> All and the at, way. At the end of the show, I'm going to make him go through all that again, folks. So don't worry. If you didn't write it down, you don't have a piece of paper. If you're driving your car, please, please don't try and write this down when you're driving. And remember, be sure to let us know again what you think of the issue because we're really trying to build a community of JLI fans around this podcast, trying to bring them all together and celebrate this wonderful book that we all love. Folks, now we're going to do what's possibly the most boring part of the show, but we have to do it every month. It's kind of like a contractual thing where we let the guests talk for a while. It's not fun. I know that. But part of it, too, is I owe this man an apology because for like the last five years I've been saying his name wrong. I'm not guaranteeing I'm getting it right right now. But either way, it's it's a recompense. So, Michelle, please, if you would, for the folks at home, would you please tell us your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you discover the book and why did you fall in love with it? Oh God, this, first of all, this is like junior high school all over again. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it's funny. The way I discovered JLI, Justice League International specifically, was through Suicide Squad. I, one of my very first comic books was Suicide Squad number 13, which Mm. is the crossover story. Oh yeah. That was amongst uh, a dozen, like a, a batch of comics that I was given. I was maybe, I don't know, eight or nine years old. I think eight from like a, you know, like a 7 Eleven back when they used to sell comic books. And amongst that stack was uh, Batman's KG Beast, the Ten Knights of the Beast. Oh, wow. Storyline, the Anacenti, John Romita Jr., Daredevil, oh, a couple my, of those issues. My favorite. Yeah, and the Suicide Squad 13. So I think those three comic books just kind of nailed me. <laughs> they were just like bombs. That went <laughs> my head. They got me hooked. And so that's how I discovered it. I mean, basically Suicide Squad 13 for, I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with it, but basically it's the crossover story where they both teams, they fight in a Russian prison 
and it's awesome. It's just 22 pages of a fight scene. But of course, it's, it's written by John Ostrander, so it's really well written. It flows perfectly. And, you know, I read it as an adult, and it's great. And I read it as an eight-year-old, and it was amazing. It got me hooked. It didn't confuse me. It didn't turn me away. It was just like, that's the thing I needed. And I was like, wait, that, you know, I, I was familiar with Green Lantern, but then I saw Guy Garner <laughs> being a sort of like, you know, just being weird, you know, uh, that was my introduction to Guy Gardner and a, a bunch of other characters that I've never seen before. The Rocket Reds, Martian Manhunter, all these guys. It was great. Right. So you have all these characters and I had to find out more. So that kind of started my back issue uh, habit or sickness. <laughs> you know, it just started. It started me on the path of just collecting back issues, and so that led to me going to the store maybe a month later, and uh, you know, asking my mom to take me to the store way in the you know in the weird part of the of town, as comic books were always at. And oh, uh, always next to a laundromat, it seemed like too. Oh my god, totally. Yeah, I went to A <laughs> and Comics down in Miami, and there's a laundromat right across the way. I mean, it it's still there. It's a, that store is kind of like the cockroach of comic stores. It's never going to die. It's always going to be there, no matter <laughs> what the economy is like. If comic books cease to exist. It's still going to be there. <laughs> anyway, that's where that's where I bought the first back issues that I ever got. You know, and that included Justice League International number ten. Mm. And that's why that issue, this issue that we're talking about, is so important to me because that just sort of uh, that introduced me to Kevin McGuire's art, Keith Giffen, Jam Demetrius. Uh, I mean, it, it's great. It's great. I had other issues too, of course. You know, I, I I didn't get the first few; they, those were more expensive, right, and harder to get, and some of them weren't even around. You know, I didn't get issue number two for like another ten years. It took me forever to find it, but I had the one punch issue i had the other millennium crossover i mean i you lucky it up. Dog. i love this stuff <laughs> <laughs> it was great it was great what you're hearing folks is at home is that millennium is what helped mold michelle into the man he is today so i feel for his family so <laughs> <laughs> So, it, going through that experience of discovering those... Now, because I imagine you had probably seen the Super Friends, or, or at least uh, from merchandising in the store, were familiar with Superman, Batman, and all that. It had to be right. kind of weird coming upon all these different characters, especially in issue 13, because it's definitely a collection of people that you know, weren't in mainstream at that point. So, we, right. you know, and I don't know if it's from that group or what, but who would you say is your favorite JLI characters? And if you can, narrow it down somewhere between one to three. I was familiar with superpowers. And that's, okay, that sure, was what I, sure. you know, and that was like the main characters, right? So when I saw the Justice League, I wasn't like, where's Superman and Batman? And, and actually Batman was there anyway. So it seemed mm. normal. I'm like, oh, so that's the Justice League. That's fine. So to me, that is the Justice League. Oh, the, awesome. yeah, the more iconic classic uh, lineup was more like superpowers, like the toys. Oh, that's the toy line. Those are the big guns, the greatest hits. Like, who cares? That's not a team. That's just... Those are just toys, you know? Like, of course you're going to have Green Lantern and Flash Air. Like, of course you're going to have Wonder Woman. But then this Justice League International just seemed like such a weird, cool book. It just had all these familiar characters and older characters. My favorite at the time was Guy Gardner, of course. Mm. And what, I got to say, though, Batman offhand, but that's oh. not fair. That's that's like saying the Beatles are your favorite band. It's like you can't. <laughs> You can't do that. Yeah, it's not fair. It's like saying Jack Kirby's the greatest cartoonist ever. You can't do that. You can't compare him to anything. They're on their own playing field. And so Batman's just great. He's just the best character. So outside of that, it's Guy Gardner. It was Guy Gardner, I gotta say. He's just kind of like uh -oh. that. 
you know, he's the jerk. He's, yeah. he's the jerk that everyone loves to hate. And J.M. Demetrius wrote him beautifully. I think it's kind of funny that J.M. being uh, a, pretty much like a card-carrying liberal wrote this right-wing nut job, And it was great. <laughs> and it wasn't really, I mean, maybe it was insulting a little bit, you know, lot, lots of jabs. But he's the best character, so whatever. But anyway, in my reread of these comics in the recent, in recent years, I've come to really love Black Canary. Oh, okay. She's awesome. I mean, she's like the perfect mix of, I think you've mentioned this before. It's like sexy and tough and cool looking. I mean, I love her costume. I think you and I are the only ones who like that costume. <laughs> it's a great costume. It really is. What do you guys call it? The yoga costume? Uh, or the... Well, you, you can call it the, the jazzercise costume. Jazzercise. Yeah. Right. Or, or the mom jeans of superhero costumes. Oh my god, but they look so, it looks great. It's a great design. I think, uh, Jerome K. Moore, I know he drew her first appearance. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if he designed it. It was, uh, like a back issue of Detective Comics or something. At least my memory is, and we'd have, cause I want to say, and I could be wrong. You know what? We need Ryan Daly, who was in the first episode of the show, who's a Black Canary expert, to really fuss this out for us. And he can put something in the comments if he bothers to listen to the show anymore now that he's moved on to stardom. <laughs> I want to say her costume very first appeared in a Who's Who issue and was designed by Stefano. But Ooh, really? I think, because he did a bunch of costume designs at the time. Like, he redid Elongated Bands, and a lot of them premiered in Who's Who, and then would appear in a comic shortly afterwards. Now, Stephen DeStefano is what I'm trying to say. Ryan, let us know, or anyone else in the comments, uh, please help fill out that information for us. So yeah, anyway, Black Canary's my favorite. I think she's great. Uh, unfortunately, she was taken away from uh, the team, and she was given to Mike Grell. Yeah. I'm not I'm not the biggest fan. I've given those comics a shot. I'm not really crazy about rape torture fantasies, especially in comic books or in mm. any media. Really, I don't think that's necessary. Oh, spoiler alert. Shit, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, 30 years old. Yeah, I think you're okay. <laughs> I think he just kind of reduced her to some just a basic, weird, nothing character. I, I would have to reread that, but please don't make me reread that. The Green Arrow stuff, which isn't all terrible. I like some of it. I certainly like the Dan Jurgens drawn issues because I'm a huge Jurgens fan. But man, Mike Grell just really doesn't do it for me for some reason. And I really like Black Canary, I, uh, you know, when she was in the JLIs. But whatever. She's here in these issues and they're great. She's unfortunately not in this issue that we're discussing. Right. But I do, you know, that is, if I had to pick, that is my favorite character. And you know what's nice is as, as you continue your read through here, I think what you'll find is I think they took a lot of the humor that they gave Black Canary the really sharp, sharp, sarcastic biting lines that are so good. Mm -hmm. And I think they kind of gave a lot of those to Big Barda in future issues. Because I see, as I read it in kind of a big chunk, I do right. see a lot of similarities between Black Canary in the early issues and Barda in the later issues. It, while Canary won't be with us in the book, she will be sort of in spirit. Right. Uh, I never noticed the Big Barda thing. That It's interesting that she kind of occupies that same space. Uh, but that makes sense. You know, Barda's yeah. another awesome character that they handled really well. Very another it's strong, great. powerful female character who does really... Because Fire and Ice are kind of their own entities and have right. very different personalities when they first start versus where they eventually end up. But right. uh, Barda does get that sort of feel. So it doesn't take crap from anyone. Actually, it's funny. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned I bought back issues of JLI and Suicide Squad 13 was my first. The first mm -hmm. time I bought uh, an issue off the racks was issue 18, which Big Barda plays a huge role in. And uh, I remember buying that at a Walden Books. Oh, oh Walden Books. That's Aww. where I used to get most of my comics, actually. Walden Books. Not the comic shop, you know, but right. Walden Books had everything. I love oh, Walden well, books. That's what I would do, is I would hit the comic shop, and if I couldn't find what I wanted there, I'd go to Walden Books. That's how I... <laughs> or, or the convenience stores. But that was... 
you know, that was the old days of searching when we had to. Oh, man, it was so much fun. <laughs> the kids today have no idea what comic collecting was like <laughs> in the old days. Michael Bailey has a way of saying, like, basically, if you missed a comic on the shelves, it just didn't exist. In all of creation, you were never yeah. going to read that comic is kind of how it was in the old days when we were kids. <laughs> totally. And you kind of accepted it. You just kind of read on and you still enjoyed the comics. And, you know, that's that's just how it was. I mean, like I said, I, I didn't complete my Justice League run for years. Yep. You know, I just couldn't find some of those issues. They just didn't exist. You just didn't go to eBay and just get it. Right. It was a hunt. Or, com- or comatology and download it. <laughs> right, right, right. That, that certainly didn't exist. Speaking of other issues, why don't we move on to our next segment where we get to talk about other comic books. A segment called... Monitor Duty. And this is where we talk about other comics that were on the shelves the same month as this issue of Justice League International that featured the JLI characters. Now, Justice League International number 10 went on sale October 13th, 1987. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. Other titles featuring JLI members on sale in October 1987 includes, that's right, folks, you know it, your favorite, Millennium! Yes! <laughs> Issues 4 through 7 were on the stands in October 1987 by uh, Steve Englehart and Joe Staden, and that does feature the JLI throughout the series. Now, uh, we're also going to talk about other comics that feature the entire team. Michelle, you want to take the first one? Uh, sure. Well, the next one is Booster Gold 25 by mm-hmm. Dan Jurgens. And, you know, the Justice League guest star in this final issue. And it, it's a great send-off. It actually comes from a plot twist. Uh, I don't want to reveal it, but, you know, it's a very specific plot twist in Millennium. And it kind of like the plot twist in Millennium ushers in the final issue of Booster Gold, which unfortunately didn't sell enough. And they kind of, you know, Ed Dan Jurgens has a huge editorial in the back explaining it. And I kind of, it broke my heart. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I love Booster Gold, you know, in back issues, of course. I, it, this was way gone by the time I started collecting. But it was like I got to issue 25 and it was done. It was over. But at least we got to see uh, Black Canary in there and Martian Manhunter. So they made some cameos in there. Oh, and for more on Booster Gold, check out the Silver and Gold podcast and Boosterific.com. Awesome. Now, I have to say that if Booster Gold hadn't been canceled, though, I don't think Giffen and DiMatteis would have been given the free hand to do the stuff they do with Booster down the line. Uh, Booster and Beetle both, actually. That's true. Yeah, and and I guess both titles coexisted for a while, as did Blue Beetle. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, you're right. And, and you know, obviously, Giffen and DiMatteis gave him such a distinct personality. Oh, you know, yeah. that I don't think that personality would have kind of carried his own book in a, in a weird way. I mean, maybe. I mean, it worked for Mr. Miracle. So Yeah, but Boost, Booster and Beetle have that special, you know, sexist, greedy, selfish sort of mentality that works so well in a team book. That right. it, I just couldn't see it supporting an individual. I, I think this book benefited from having characters that really didn't have their own series for the most part. That's true. That's very true. All right. The JLI also make an appearance in Firestorm, The Nuclear Man, number 68, a book I know a little bit about by John Ostrander and Richard Howell. It is a, a Millennium crossover. In fact, it spins right out of this issue. When we do the recap, you'll find out where. And it features Captain Adam as he guest stars throughout the issue. And for more information on Firestorm, Check out the podcast, Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water podcast. Oh, that's me! Or FirestormFan.com. <laughs> now, there are lots and lots of JLI cameos and flashbacks of Millennium Number 1 throughout the books this month. I mean, pretty much if you picked up a Millennium tie-in this month, there was going to be a flashback to Millennium Number 1, and so you would have seen the JLI somewhere in most of these comics. All right, on to other issues on the shelves that featured current members of the JLI, including Batman number 416 by Jim Starlin and Jim Aparo. It retells the first meeting between Dick Grayson and Jason Todd, except it really doesn't, because it makes up its own new post-crisis version, and uh, I think it's a little lesser for having done that. But 
Uh, well, you also have Outsiders 28 by Mike Barr and Eric Larson, uh, early, early Eric Larson, which is a Millennium crossover. And uh, Batman cameos in one panel. Uh, it's a great <laughs> panel, but, you know, it, he represents the JLR in that one. So also, it's the final issue of the series. And speaking of very brief cameos, there's also Superman number 14 by John Byrne and Carl Kiesel. Pretty much the events of the issue we're talking about, Justice League International 10, are featured in one panel that John Byrne drew. And it's a great panel. It's a little weird because it has Wonder Woman in there and Kilowog and they're not in the mission. But whatever, it's artistic license and it's John Byrne drawing Firestorm in one of the very few times that he drew Firestorm. So it's it's, yeah. it's beautiful. Uh, and also, speaking of Byrne Supermans, there's also Action Comics 596, totally by John Byrne. I think Keith Williams drew the background or inked the backgrounds. It's with the teams up with the Spectre. And the cameo in question is a little kid wearing a Batman costume for Halloween. So I think that counts in my book. <laughs> wow, you really did your research for this. Man, this stuff is ingrained. Like I know these comics. Like this, like the weird minutia of this, like this stuff. For more on Superman, check out the From Crisis to Crisis podcast by Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor. And Michael Bailey is a past guest on this show. That's right. Uh, also, you can find more JLI members in Detective Comics number 582 by Mary Jo Duffy and Norm Brayfogle. Norm Brayfogle! Yes. <laughs> like, Angel should sing every time his name is. Seriously. Called. Anyway, it's a Millennium tie-in that crosses over with the Suicide Squad and the Spectre, which really it had this really cool cover theme where you could take Detective Comics, Spectre, Suicide Squad, and Captain Adam and line all the covers up, and they're all trenching their way through a swamp. It's really mm -hmm. neat. I, I wonder if anyone ever put a poster together for that, because that would have been cool. <sighs> I can't guarantee they all line up, but I know they're all in the same setting. I'm no, I don't know if I've ever actually sat them down on the floor next to each other. Hmm, I should, that's a project for someone at home. I want to see a picture. All right, and we've talked about Batman a lot, but for tons of great Batman-related podcasts, folks, check out the BatmanUniverse.net. Then you get Spectre number 10 by Doug Munch and Gray Morrow. Gray Morrow, mm -hmm. wow. Man, some great artists yeah. this month. Batman appears in this Millennium crossover, again, tying in with Suicide Squad and Detective Comics. If you want some Spectre coverage, check out Professor Allen and his daughter Emily in their Dorkness to Light blog. Next up, we have a big issue. It's Suicide Squad number nine, which ties into the Spectre and the Detective Comics. And Captain Adam, uh, it's Suicide Squad number nine by John Ostrander and Luke McDonald, inked by Bob Lewis, if I remember correctly, another Millennium crossover. But this is actually more important because it's the one where a Slipknot bites it. <laughs> <laughs> Supposedly. Well, he doesn't Supposedly. die. Right. He doesn't die. Right, but we right. just never Supposedly see him dies. Again. Well, we, we don't see him, I don't think, till Identity Crisis, actually. That's which is true. a long, long time. That's right. Well, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's totally, he's dead in a swamp. <laughs> choking, <laughs> choking on swamp water without an arm. But that's fine. It's a beautiful issue. But for more on Suicide Squad, check out Aaron Headmoss's Task Force X podcast. And then finally, to round out that big crossover, includes Captain Adam number 11 by Carrie Bates and Pat Broderick. I, I love the 80s so much. I'm just sick with love. <laughs> do you? Uh, do you really? I, I really do. Um, it's another, I listen to 80s music, you know, it's, it's so, it's a uh -huh. sickness. Anyway, uh, it's another Millennium crossover, as we talked about. Captain Adam here has to deal with Firestorm in the Louisiana swamp. And this is the newer incarnation of Firestorm, what I call the blank slate version. So he's a, he's a bit of a mess, a hot mess, really. And Captain Adam is trying to help him and coax him into becoming the superhero he should be. And for more information on Captain Adam, check out the Silver and Gold podcast and the Splitting Adams blog. And I have to say, out of everything that came out of Millennium, because uh, Michelle's going to spew a bunch of bullcrap about how great <laughs> it is, but out of everything from Millennium, I have to say, those four comics together, you know, Detective Comics, Spectre, Suicide Squad, and Captain Adam, that's probably my favorite thing. Well, ooh, I really like Manhunter, too, now that I think about it. Oh, yeah. Um, well, these four issues are a really great crossover set, and um, that's, that's just something I... Oh, and New Guardians. You like New Guardians, don't you? 
Next. <laughs> Up next, we have Blue Beetle 21 by Len Wein and Ross Andrew. Guess what? It's another Millennium crossover. Who would have thought? <laughs> uh, this one features Mr. Miracle and Overthrow, the villain Overthrow, and the Manhunters. Plus, specifically for me, uh, it's a Chris Wozniak cover. And you guys will know who Chris Wozniak I'm sure you already know, but he will eventually yes, be... Do. The artist on Justice League International, or America at that time. And I think Chris Wozniak has a, a fan in me only. Like, no, I've never heard anything nice spoken about this man, unfortunately. I think he's great. I think by the time he rolls around, you're going to have to have me on again to defend him. Oh, okay. Well, what uh, I'll have to look at what era he takes for, because the, the, the ten of this podcast is we'll go through the Giffen DiMatteis era. And so we're going to stop at the end of Breakdowns. Right. Does he come on board before Breakdowns or I after Breakdowns? I think he's right, right at the cusp of Breakdowns. He just, yeah, okay. he takes it. No one likes his stuff. Everyone I talk to hates him. I, I don't get it. But, you know, I, I mean, I sort of get it because it's so not in line with the McGuire, Adam Hughes template that was set up. But he's just so awesome. I love Chris Wozniak. I, I don't think he works in comics anymore, but, you know, I love all the old issues that he worked on. So I look forward to checking that, that out. That, I seem to recall a couple of his of his Who's Who entries that he did, and I don't know that I was terribly favorable yeah, on them. But um, it would be interesting to see his Justice League. Well, by the time that issue comes around, I think uh, it'll be about 10 years from now. At the, re- the recent rate, yeah. <laughs> hey now, hey, hey now. no, you're just covering it in, <laughs> I, in sweet detail. Like that's not a that's not a, a knock on your output. You you're cranking this stuff out as best you could. This is this takes time, man. We are crawling this stuff out, folks. We are crawling <laughs> it out. <laughs> And for more on the oh. Beetle, because apparently Michelle doesn't want to read sorry, the script, sorry, sorry, uh, check, sorry. Out the, check out the Court Industries blog <laughs> by Tim Wallace, another former guest of this show. Apparently, Tim, uh, apparently Michelle hates you because he won't read your blog name. Terribly I'm just sorry. spitballing. I just Gosh. went off on a tangent. You know, I just, I, just, I like to go off script <laughs> as, as much as I can. But, you know. <laughs> and you didn't even take a second to take a shot at Overthrow, the high life villain. <laughs> right. I mean, come on. That guy's such a clown. Oh, my God. He's not, he's not even worth money, uh, except I just did, so whatever. Anyway. Well, I, I I got it. Well, he's one of those characters that you can clearly tell somebody went because you know Highlight was big in the '80s. Someone went to a Highlight thing and had a couple of beers and bet on some some uh, some matches, and then said, "You know what? This would make a great supervillain. Yeah, this is a great idea." You know, you know what's sad? Yeah, I'm from Miami, and I never picked up on that. That's right. He's a Highlight guy. I mean, Highlight was huge. That's the Miami thing. Oh. And uh, yeah. unfortunately, I just didn't connect to Overthrow when I was a resident of Dade County. So. Yeah. And now you're a little lesser. Fan. <laughs> uh, finally, Michelle's favorite comic book on the on the shelves: Green Arrow number one by Mike Grell and Ed Hannigan. It is the start of the Mike Grell monthly series featuring Black Canary Yay. as a co-star in that book. And this is the beginning of Black Canary leaving our JLI. We only have a few more months with her, and really not many appearances at all. No. Which is sad. Now, I have fond memories of this book. I haven't reread it since it was on the shelves, though. What I remember was some darker storytelling for the time, and that Green Arrow and Black Canary were having sex every issue and got interrupted. Those are the two things that stick in my mind about that comic book. But someday I'll get around to rereading it, because some friends of mine are actually rereading it. Darren and Ruth Sutherland are rereading the, the Mike Grell series for their Warlord Worlds podcast. You should definitely check that out, folks. And if you want more on Black Canary, you should check out the Power of Fishnets podcast by Ryan Daly, former guest of this show. I'm exhausted, man. I'm ready to go. Come on. You know, talking about all those amazing 80s comics that I love so much and all those amazing artists, it's sort of like a Thanksgiving feast for me. I'm going to have to go take a nap. While I'm sleeping, we'll play some podcast promos, and then after that's done, we'll come back and we'll talk about Justice League International number 10. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Hi. 
I'm Tim from Cord Industries, the Blue Beetle blog. I'm here to tell you about an exciting new addition to the Silver and Gold family of podcasts. The show is Beetlemania, and it focuses on what is arguably one of the greatest superheroes in all of comics history, Blue Beetle. From the adventures of Dan Garrett the cop in the 1930s to Dan Garrett the archaeologist in the 1960s, from everyone's favorite Ted Cord to the more recent adventures of Jaime Reyes, we'll be covering the entire legacy of the Blue Beetle. And I won't be doing it alone. Joining me for this epic journey through the lives of the Blue Beetle will be Jay from the Silver and Gold Podcast. Together, we'll be discussing, reviewing, and celebrating the awesomeness of all of the Beatles. Beatlemania, coming soon to SNGpod.com and cordindustries.blogspot.com. Two hundred and twenty-nine different characters spanning the galaxies of the Legion of Superheroes, presented across seven comic book issues. A new miniseries as part of the Who's Who podcast. To handle this many characters, the Irredeemable Shag is bringing in a ringer, or maybe we should call them flight ringers. Who's who in the Legion of Who's who in the Legion of Who's who in the Legion of Superheroes? The Legion of Superheroes in the Legion of Superheroes. The Legion of Superbloggers team up to present Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes, a three-episode miniseries in 2017, part of the Who's Who podcast on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Long live the Legion. And we're back, folks. Uh, thank you for that little break. I have... Just finished my 1980s trip to Fancoma. I feel much better, well-rested, ready to go. And we are going to talk about Justice League International, number 10, published by DC Comics, cover dated February 1988, cover price 75 cents. Yep, that's right, three shiny quarters, cover by Kevin McGuire and Al Gordon. Michelle, why don't you walk us through this cover? Well, it's funny. It's, there's not much to walk through because it's such a simple cover, but it's great in its simplicity. It's basically just a bunch of heroes, the protagonist of the story, flying through space, and you know, and this was, it was kind of an uncommon cover back then, just because the covers back then just tended to have a scene from the book or something a little bit more action oriented. And this sort of cover kind of predates the current crop of covers where everything's like a poster. You know, it's very, everything's right, trying to be iconic right. or representative of one character or a group, you know, poster shots, essentially. So it kind mm -hmm. of, you know, predates that. It's, I think, fully drawn by Kevin McGuire, inked by Al Gordon. I like the colors, too. I I think it really pops. It's really colorful. It's almost like a candy-coated nightmare. It's great. Um, <laughs> it's colored by Bob LaRose. He's not credited in the issue, but that's revealed a few issues from now, so that's how I find out. But it's it's great. Usually cover colorists aren't credited anywhere. They're not mentioned. They're not human. They're not considered to be anything. But I, I love the colors <laughs> on this, man. And uh, you know what's interesting, too? Seeing this, the heroes are basically flying. Superman is sort of almost in the center of this, leading the pack. Mm-hmm. And everyone has a different flight position. You know, it's like Kevin McGuire drew them all. Oh. He took this just a, a basic, simple concept of flight and just kind of gave everyone their own personality within that. And he nails it. I mean, he, he it's it's so great. And another weird thing is that there's, there are not that many leaguers on the cover, actual like card carrying members of the Justice League International in the story either. So 
that's a little weird, but I, I mean, I give it a pass yeah. because it's beautiful. So, well, I think we're going to talk about that mm-hmm. some in a minute once we once we get done with the issue because I do have some questions mm-hmm. about that. As far as the covers, I mean, it's Superman, uh, Hal Jordan, Hawkman, Martian Manhunter, uh, Rezia, Cat Matui, and Hawkgirl, and I'm sorry, Hawkwoman, and Doctor Fate. Which again, like you said, is a weird eclectic collection of of hero. Uh, well, a lot of Justice Leaguers, but not a lot of JLI members, right, as you said. Right. And having Superman square in the front, I mean, that's got to be on purpose, you know, to put the Man of Steel right there. Besides the fact that he's, you know, the, the headlining character of the DC Universe, he's a huge seller right. at this point. Putting him on the cover of a book that has been gone out of his way not to feature the main characters of the DC Universe for a while now is got to be something intentional. Now, I'm also a little conflicted about the cover because right front and center is Aresia's cleavage. Oh God, <laughs> it's right there. McGuire put it right no, out there. I, I just and, saw that. How could? And oh, just now, sure you did. The the, the 13 year old Michelle I saw. Can't. It. I see it. Anyway, <laughs> Kevin McGuire does not know how to draw an unattractive woman, so she's beautiful. Mm. However, if you know your comic mm. history, Arisi is like 13 years old in the body of like a 22-year-old hottie Baywatch actress. Yeah. It's very creepy. So I'm, I'm really um, I'm, I'm conflicted about that. Now, the, the rainbow effect in the background, it looks like, you know, a bag of Skittles <laughs> in space, is... Um, I guess that's supposed to be the planet they're going to. Is is that? What that I don't is? think so. It doesn't. I mean, it could be. I think it's just like a random planet, a cool cosmic thing. You know, it doesn't even look. Okay. I mean, it's sort of a planet. It could be anything. I mean, it's got a curve. It's got I a. Mean, I don't know if maybe they're on their way to Jotunheim or something. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I don't. know. I mean, it looks. It's just eye catching. That's all. You know, it's just, yeah. it's all the cover. Uh, yeah, like you said, you play Superman, square center. He leaves the book. It's a no-brainer, and you just make it pop with all these colorful cover, uh, colors. So I, I don't know what the reasoning behind that was. It, I think it was just give it a little oomph. I do like it. it. Like you said, the colors are gorgeous. It really is explosive. It is different, though, than previous covers of this book. And I know this because I, I do a little Photoshop uh, adjustment for the logo mm-hmm. of each episode. And it's been easy up to this point because every cover has been some sort of central figure in a blank, single-color background. And I've noticed that that's been a repeating pattern that McGuire's was – Character in the front, you know, like even like uh, the issue where they're holding back Guy Gardner. Remember, Guy Gardner's all angry and Marsh Manhunter and, and Captain Marvel holding him back. It's just that. No there's background. No background. It's all a solid color. And every issue is, for the most part, I mean, there's a couple exceptions here and there that have been like that. And this one definitely doesn't follow that mold. I think it's stronger for that, you know, being a little different. It probably stands out compared right. to the other issues. So it's right. very pretty. No, I, I love it. I love it. I mean, it worked for me as a, as a consumer. I, I bought it immediately. So, you know, and there here I go. am. Let's talk about the issue. It's, it's called Soul of the Machine, and it's 17 pages. Plot and breakdowns by Keith Giffen, script by J.M. Timoteus, penciler Kevin McGuire, Al Gordon did the inks, Bob Lappin did, is a letter. Hey, round is of it applause. Lappin round or Lapin? I say Lappin, but round of applause for Bob. He deserves it. He, most amazing letter. Unbelievable. My God, he's great. DC was killing it with letters at this time. They had Klein, they had Ken Brusenak, Gaspar. They're yep. awesome. Anyway, Bob Lappin, unsung. I love that guy. Uh, colorist, Gene D'Angelo, and editor, Andy Helfer. As far as the plot goes, it's a bunch of superheroes that take a battle to a planet full of robot vigilantes and annihilate them. It's wholesale <laughs> slaughter, Kevin Maguire style, the end. That's all you need. <laughs> All right, folks, thanks for listening to the JLI podcast. Tune in next month. It's been great. Um, See you later. <laughs> Bye now. Well, like you, men- you mentioned, the entire cast, which included Martian Manhunter and Captain Adam, oh, which I just noticed is not on the cover either. So really, John, John Jones is the only representative. But anyway, it's John Jones, Captain Adam, as the only active leaguers. Uh, you could kind of make a case for Dr. Fate, who quit the team, what, a few issues ago, a couple issues ago? Yeah. 
Uh, so it's a sort of reunion. But anyway, uh, you have Superman, Hawkman, Hawkwoman, select members of the Green Lantern Corps, Hal Jordan, his underage girlfriend, like you mentioned, <laughs> and Captain Tui Stewart. That's John Stewart's wife. And, uh, and Firestone. You know that guy. I do. Um, well, the assembled team is on a giant floating walnut <laughs> and on the verge of attacking the Manhunter's home planet in order to defeat their, their the Grandmaster. And so it's kind of like the calm before the storm, which is disrupted when Firestorm gets a wild hair up his butt and flies away out of nowhere, <laughs> uh, causing Captain Adam to chase him down and bring him back. Yeah, I gotta say, a detail of historical significance. Hawkwoman makes her first joke on page three, <laughs> which which to me is a big deal. Okay. The team lands on a barren planet, noticing that its surface is entirely made of yellow sand, uh, which, which is, by the way, is an artist's best friend. Space and desert. <laughs> like, Kim McGuire, God bless him. <laughs> Never thought of him. that. Uh, he more than makes up for it later, but anyway, we'll get there. Hal Jordan, unfortunately, has a crushing phobia of the color yellow, but Kat Matui, being the good friend she is, tries to console him, you know? Spoiler alert, Kat Matui will be rewarded for being such a good friend by being sliced to death by Hal's insane ex-girlfriend not long after <laughs> oh, this mission. God, that's uh, horrible. True, but horrible. Yeah, I think Chad discussed it on his Action Comics Weekly podcast. Does he Chad must have a podcast? I didn't realize that. Oh, wait, yeah, your previous guest. Uh, I don't even remember guest. who that is. Okay. Chad he doesn't exist. Folks, I'm just giving him a hard time. Action Comics Weekly podcast, you should definitely check it out. He's a person. He exists. He had words. <laughs> they came out of his mouth. Anyway, I'm making I'm making. I choose to forget up. that whole part of my life. And don't worry, I'll forget this one in about a month. You'll forget this one, hopefully, the first. <laughs> anyway, another detail of historical significance, Hawkwoman makes her second joke on page five. <laughs> now... I'm not being facetious at all. I think Shayra Hall is my favorite. You know, I mentioned Black Canary, but for like a non-member, uh, as, as of now, she's my favorite. Nobody wrote her like Demetrius did. And you know, it's kind of heartbreaking that, okay, another big spoiler. If you're not familiar with the Hawkman lores, she's not Shayra Hall, but an earth woman named Sharon Parker, who was murdered by her double agent husband. But, you know, at least she exists perfectly within these Justice League international pages for the few issues. Hold on a minute here. You are... You, you are analyzing this incarnation of Hawkwoman through retcon tinted glasses, sir. I know. I shouldn't. I really don't normally do that, but, uh, you know, for the sake of completion, I just, you have to take that into effect. And it's trying? terrible. No, 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 no. No, you don't. Here's the deal. So, what he's talking about is in the Hawkworld ongoing series, John Ostrander, or Ostrander, as you said it. Which one is it? Do we know? I've heard him say Ostrander. I oh. went all my life saying Ostrander. Well, if I he think said they all Ost- get it. If he said Ostrander, it's probably right. I mean, I'm just thinking he might know how to say his own. I'm still questioning whether you know how to say your name, but I figure he knows how to say his. Um, I'm making up mine as I go along, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know. He's like Joker with alternate origins. You just change it every time you tell it. <laughs> anyway, um, Ostrander in the Hawkworld ongoing series had to explain the post-crisis hiccups with Hawkman's appearances, and so he created this retcon, which honestly was rather clever, complicated, but clever, mm-hmm. almost, almost burn-like uh, retcon about as what you just described with the Hawkman nonsense. And so that makes this Hawkwoman fake and not really her. You know what? Go the zero hour philosophy, which is Hawkman's origins is a mess. It keeps getting rewritten <laughs> and history just screws with it all the time. And you know what? That just makes this one the, as far as I'm concerned, the Silver Age or Bronze Age Hawkwoman, which is who she should be. And I like it that way. Yes. Let's just keep it. Let's just keep her alive in our memory <laughs> exactly. with these issues, specifically this one. But uh, anyway, you need to get back to your retcon because your turn is taking so long. Okay, let's go. Okay, so they, <laughs> hey man, I tried doing it briefly in the in the front, so let's do this. Hey, I took like five minutes of your recap time, so it's my fault. They penetrate the planet's surface 
as they expose it as the machine world that it is. They go deeper into its infrastructure. They stumble upon nobody's favorite Green Lantern, Nort. <laughs> and after being absolute zero help for the span of two long pages, <gasps> Nort is left behind, and the team proceeds to launch their attack after Dr. Fade pinpoints the center of the threat, which, by the way, the threat is basically a large hall. A large, like, corridor filled to the brim with pink bubbles, a.k.a. Manhunters. Uh, and even though the Martian Manhunter is the only official representative of the JLI, he has enough sense to let Superman take lead, as indicated by the cover. So, uh, complete destruction ensues, and it is glorious. Shag, it really over is to you. Glorious. It is an amazing few it's pages of them just ripping apart Manhunters. And since they're robots, in comics you can kill robots. So it's just awesome. Right. So once our heroes finish dispatching hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating, of Manhunters, possibly thousands, they regroup and then decide their next course of action. Martian Manhunter cracks some pretty funny jokes at Hawkman's expense, and Kat Matui mentions that she expected Manhunter to be more stoic, so it's actually pointing out the change in his behavior in the comic. Hawkwoman makes another funny, and by the way, I love this version of Hawkwoman too, but my personal favorite is Shayera Thal from the Hawkworld series. She she was awesome, and I wish they could find a way to bring her back. She was so badass. Just such yeah. a cool character. Anyway, oh, yeah. Hawkman fusses at Hawkwoman for cracking jokes at a time like this, but Superman expresses his admiration for Hawkwoman's sense of humor. And uh, this gets a little attention from Hawkman, and we sense a little hawk jealousy, I think, going on there. Um, Dr. Fate practices his new magical skills and locates the source of the Manhunter's might. It is the birthing chamber. Now it's time to move on to the boss level, folks. There we see the Sentinel Master Mold. I mean, <coughs> sorry, the High Master of the Manhunters. And while the High Master is sort of spaced out, Dr. Dr. Fate convinces Superman to fry all the incubating Manhunters with his heat vision. This finally gets the attention of the High Master. The Manhunter boss is ticked, and uh, the heroes have sullied his base, his words, not mine, and murdered the growing Manhunters. As the High Master leaves his throne, it does the intelligent thing. Instead of turning to fight our heroes, it simply just gets out of dodge. <laughs> Turns out that without the High Master, the planet will simply fly apart. Superman uses his burrowing power to reach the surface, and the art by McGuire in this panel is gorgeous, and of Superman spinning, it is so awesome it is worthy of Christopher Reeve in Superman the movie. Plus, Aresia is underneath with this little tiny green construct of a super cute mini umbrella, which is just adorable. Then our heroes escape the crumbling planet, a la Lost in Space the movie, and they regroup with Firestorm and Captain Atom. Somehow, they have misplaced their Nort, but have picked up Harbinger and another Green Lantern in its place, a Green Lantern named Drick, who is a guy who looks like a Picasso painting. But the story ends with our heroes <laughs> overlooking the destruction of Alderaan from their patented floating George Perez rock, and Hawkman mm -hmm. expresses his frustration that everyone's making jokes. And Hawkwoman says to her husband, Katar, love of my life, please don't ever change. And the caption yeah. says... It isn't over yet. The story continues in Millennium Number 6, on sale next week. Then join us here next month for the first part of the story you've waited for all year, Max's story. Dun-dun-dun! Sweet. Then, uh, before we get into our commentary, we've got to cover the backup story. There was a five-page backup story called Back at the Ranch. Plot and pencils, so this is not drawn by McGuire. Plot and pencils by Keith Giffen. Script by J.M.D. Mateus. Inks by Al Gordon. Letters by Moss. I assume that's Spanish for more, so maybe it's a lot of people. I don't know. I think that's uh, Agustin oh, Moss. Oh, really? Oh. I believe so. Okay. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo, and editor is Andy Helfer. And the backup, it's a cute little story taking place sometime during the downtime within Millennium. And it features Blue Beetle and Mr. Miracle getting in over their heads. 
in a situation. Now, our heroes are hanging out at the Green Lantern Citadel, or as I like to call it, the real-world Green Lantern Town, and uh, Beetle decides he wants to get a closer look at the Manhunter spaceship they've captured. Coincidentally, the hatch opens in this little floating globe that looks like the Star Wars uh, practice droid from when Luke fought. It's about the size of a basketball, comes zipping out and flying all over the place. It causes havoc for our heroes, and eventually it attaches itself to the face of one of the new Guardians. Oh, no. And frantically, Mr. Miracle tries to discover a way to get the device off the new Guardian before it kills him. Because after all, Mr. Miracle is the escape artist supreme. When Miracle isn't having any luck, Kilowog simply strolls over and clicks the off switch. Turns out that the new Guardian was never in any danger. It was just a simple mind probe. It's a pretty funny bit, and Beetle mocks Miracle as they walk away. So, there we go. That is the issue. Michelle, what did you think? It was an alright issue, I guess. Wow. Kind of lame. After, after all of that, this, this shaped your life and made you the comic reader you are today, and you said, eh, it's all right. Yeah, it's not worth it. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, this is up there with kind of like Rob Kelly's love for Justice League America of America number 200. Where he Whoa. thinks that's the greatest piece of literature ever. And I think this is up there for me, for personally. <sighs> uh, and, ma- and maybe even objectively. I think it's a great story. I like the backup. Real quick, that resolution to the backup, I think that was used a year later by Grant Morrison. Yeah, absolutely uh, was. Animal Man. Uh, right? The invasion crossover. Right. When Hawkman just kind of shows up and sorry to give so many spoilers in this episode guys I'm really sorry but uh, he kind of just presses a button it's that simple I mean it's funny and it's effective both times I don't think Morrison was plagiarizing or anything but it's just kind of a weird coincidence it's, um, it's, an, it's an effective storytelling device it was used also in uh, one of the secret files and origins issues where hmm. I think I want to say the DC Universe one number year 2000 why I can remember that I have no idea I think it's uh Ray Palmer is giving a lecture to a bunch of superheroes, younger ones, trying to teach them how to do stuff, and they talk about how to disarm this bomb, and it goes around and around, everyone in the room gives their suggestions, and finally Power Girl goes, just turn it off, and uh, so it's it's a good it's a good gag, and it definitely gets a lot of use. I don't know if this is the first place we ever saw it, but it's it's definitely mm-hmm. out out there in the cosmos. Right, right, right. Oh, when did that come out? 2000? That one, If I remember right, it was uh, DCU Secret Files and Origins, I think so. That's like a huge blind spot for me, that era of DC Comics. I'm, I'm slowly working my way through through that so yeah i had no idea it existed but yeah it is a good resolution to a, a cute little story a nice little five page backup but for the main story though the title soul of the machine is a riff on the book by uh, tracy kidder called soul of the new machine oh. which is a, a non-fiction book about it's pretty much about team spirit it involves a computer engineering team and sort of reward systems for you know their achievements you know it's it's you know not just for profit it's basically quality versus speed you know, a variation of the art versus commerce uh, concept, which is kind of what comic books constantly struggle with. But anyway, for for this issue, it works specifically well, obviously, because it involves, you know, robots and how they feel <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and Superman straight up murdering them. So, yeah, um, he does. <laughs> but also it's about teamwork. And this is kind of like the first time that some of the leaguers, uh, select few leaguers actually work as a team with other kind of not renegade heroes, but they're their own, their own independent entities. So, you know, the title's a riff and it works in several ways. So I, I did not realize cool. the connection of the book, but yeah, I could totally see that it does work. And the team Teamwork is a big thing in here, especially with uh, Hawkman and all of his comments about the Justice League and the way it used to be. Right. And I wonder if, if this is because of this issue and the way he kind of vibed with the team, it was so potent that they kind of mined that later. Like they brought him in and mm-hmm. like, oh, we could we could really use this guy. <laughs> you know, I think he's great. I think he works well with the team. He kind of represents in a weird way, not Guy Gardner, because he's not he's not like buffoonish in a, in a weird way. He's just headstrong. 
and leans more conservative. But I think he's great. I think they're both great, uh, the team of the Hawks. And, and it's just that it's very condescending, which is nice. It's something they don't have on the team otherwise. Right. I don't think many uh, like comic book characters uh, reacted that way at all. Even at the height of like Stanley writing Ben Grimm being kind of like snarky and mopey and, you know, uh, always fighting with the Human Torch. I don't think it kind of had the subtlety that, that James Emmett's uh, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, uh, what their banter was. You know, I think uh, it's so specific. I think it's really well written. Uh, it's pitch perfect almost. It's so good. And I think it lends credibility to like this insane story about <laughs> annihilating a bunch of robots. So I don't know. I think it works. Oh, I got to say also that this may be the first time, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first time that the Bwahaha treatment was given to like a large DCU cast. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're think, right. I think you're right. Right? Like, you know, we've had cameos by Superman and Green Lantern and certainly the Creeper. But this <laughs> is like, this is like J.M. Dimitrius, like having an entire team, like the, the greatest hits of the DCU, like the major players. And he gave them all personalities, you know, and they, they were joking and they, it wasn't like just a joke a minute either. They had bona fide personalities. It was great. Uh, so that's kind of good. Well, he, you're right. And he found a way to make them work within the blah, ha, ha, because even Superman, Superman wasn't cracking jokes, but the way he delivered his lines were funny. You know, when, yeah, when he, right. when he turns to Hawkwoman and says, I admire you having a sense of humor or when he's talking to Nort and, and we'll get to Nort, believe me, but he, he's genuinely impressed with Nort's perseverance, you know, and I mean, it's, right. <laughs> right. It's funny, and it, and yet he it fits within the blahaha frame without taking the characters down. Now, if any of the characters you want to argue got dragged down to the the blahaha level, it would have been Hawkman and Hawkwoman because they really are, as you talked about a minute ago. I don't want to repeat it, but if anyone got brought into that, it's them, which may be why they were so perfect to add to the team later. Which spoiler, sorry guys, uh, Hawkman and Hawkwoman do join the JLI later down the road. Yeah, but at the same time, what came before? Like you got Tony Isabella, you know, th- those were just kind of standard comics. They they were they were good. I like them. I like what, how Richard Howell drew them. But this is like another level. This is this actually gave them personality, or, mm-hmm. or rather expanded on their set personalities. I mean, Shayra Hall is amazing. She's just what a fun character to read. I just want to. She should have her own book. You know, we were talking about how like Booster and, and Blue Beetle maybe couldn't carry a book, but I think Hawk Hawk Girl Hawk Woman as she is here, I think she could have totally had her own book. Maybe not then, obviously, but I think with the right creative team. I would follow her anywhere. These are this is a great representation of the Hawks, I think. So yeah. I, I don't know. I was never an old school Hawkman fan, so I don't. I'm, know. I, I like Hawkman in small doses. I like the Hawk World series because it was so different. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know his his Silver Age and and it's probably gonna tick off uh, our good friends Doug Zuisha and uh, Luke Jacanetti. But his, his Silver Age and Bronze Age stuff don't do a lot for me. Right. So it, yeah, I like this percent. It would have been fun to see J.M.D. Mateus and Giffen write it actually because they are so funny together. Would have been right. fun to see a Hawkman and Hawkwoman series. But clearly Hawkman couldn't sell at that point, and I blame that solely at the feet of Deathwing. But anyway, <laughs> uh, now I do wonder with these particular characters. If Giffen and Dimitrius sought out this collection of different characters, they wanted to play with more toys in the toy box, or whether they were dictated which characters to use because of the Millennium Crossover. But it, you know, it's, it's an interesting question that you know, as you said, they got to make them part of the Bahaha universe, and I think it works really well for it. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. You know, it's funny because John Ostrander had a huge part in Millennium in that he helped plot and 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 kind of develop the story's momentum with Steve Englehart, the writer Steve Englehart. And if you noticed his issue of Firestorm this month, 
the first few uh, pages are identical to these to this issue. It's right. just drawn by Richard Howell, and pretty much it's it's the same wording with slight variances, but it's the same. So it kind of made me think like, was he? I think he may have given a credit to James Demetrius, so he may have just like lifted that, you know, just swiped that this the script just for continuity's sake, or if he kind of co-wrote the first few pages of this. I'm not sure. It's weird. I'm but, glad you um, mentioned it because I had the same exact question because uh, I was very pleased with the way Firestorm was handled this issue because he's in this blank slate era, as I call it, mm-hmm. which is right after he was joined with Mikhail Arkadin and became a new version of Firestorm. And the Firestorm entity itself is he has no memories. He has no right. memories. He has no personality. He's got nothing. He is literally a blank slate. And here in the first couple of issues, or pages, he's acting really strange. And Captain Adam and him go off to go have their own adventure, which he crosses over into Firestorm. Even tells you in the issue, tells you to go find you know Firestorm number sixty-eight. I, I also wondered if Ostrander had maybe written those pages because it's done so well. I don't know. Yeah. And McGuire, great attention to detail here because at this point Firestorm's costume had changed, but only ever so slightly. He got these little red sideburns. Which I know is like a stupid little minor detail, but McGuire nailed it. They're there. He's got the red sideburns, which represent the blank slate version. Oh, yeah, I didn't notice that. I can't help it. <laughs> you haven't let us down yet. <laughs> Speaking of attention to detail, I got to bring up one other thing since we're talking about McGuire, and I think uh, I think you'll agree with me. McGuire is great in this issue, but specifically Doctor Fate, because you know, just a few issues ago, like in issue seven, McGuire drew the best looking Doctor Fate helmet mm-hmm. ever. It was right. He, you could see the helmet, you could see the the metal, you could see the eyes through the holes. It was gorgeous, and here. He has adapted his style to match the new incarnation of Dr. Fate, because this is not the Ken Nelson Dr. Fate. This is Eric and Linda Strauss' Dr. Fate. And in this version, the helmet is actually Fate's face. It actually becomes his face. And uh-huh. the helmet can now emote. And if you look on pages 3 and 7, here, and it's the same artist as we had just a few issues ago, you can now see the, the eyelids, like the, the helmet actually blinks. You can see the crinkled forehead when he's frustrated. Oh, yeah. And uh, he, you know, again, same artist, completely different adaptation for Dr. Fate, and he did a great job with it. I was really impressed. That looks great. I thought he was just taking liberties with the, with the helmet, um, the way people do with, like, Spider-Man's eyes. You know, sure. they get bigger. I've never read those Dr. Fate comics. I've only read the mini that Keith Giffen drew. Okay. I, I've read some of the Dr. Fate later on, like when she be, when he becomes she. Mm-hmm. But I've never read those, so I would have never picked up on the fact that there's, like, that slight, subtle change in the helmet. So It's, it's, it's an interesting series, but it's done by J.M.D. Mateus and art by Sean McManus. And personally, mm-hmm. for my money, it is the best Sean, Sean McManus art ever. It is just gorgeous. Yeah, the covers I've seen look fantastic. So yeah. I, that's definitely on the list. You know, it's it's what twenty five years in in the making, <laughs> me getting those comics. Yep. So one day, and I've got a bunch of letters published in the later issues. So there you go. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, now I have, to, hack. I have to. Get. And in, in the later eras of those Doctor Fate issues, after Demetrius left and it was Bill Mester Loeb's, I don't know how oh. many people were really writing in at that point. So <laughs> I got printed a lot. <laughs> Actually, those those are the ones I did read. The one with art with Vince Giorano when yeah. he was kind of yep. on a Kyle Baker style kick. I love that stuff. I love the few issues I read, so I just have to go back and get the Sean McManus stuff. Well, if, but anyway. if we ever get a chance to meet face-to-face, I can get you to sign my copies of uh, Copra, and I can sign your copies of Dr. Fate for you for the letters. Yes! Oh my god. I'm buying that right now. <laughs> I'm going online. I'm going to Perfect. Buy. I will sign your iPad with a Sharpie. There we go. Great. <laughs> Oh, and then there's Kevin Maguire. I think he's hitting his stride in this issue. I think, you know, it's kind of like the script, too. It's like they haven't locked into a formula yet. They're kind of, they're not quite figuring it out. They have it figured out, but it's not, it's not predictable. And I think the art reflects that because he's kind of, you know, he hasn't like fallen back on being the, the squinty face guy, the, the expressive emotive guy, mm-hmm. you know, uh, everyone, it, it's kind of like a good balance. You know, he kind of has like, 
simple comic book faces, really emotive faces, the right amount of detail. I think it's it just comes together with this issue. I don't know if it's something about the story, how it's it's pretty simple. It's just a bunch of heroes fighting. You know, there's nothing to it, and yet there's there's so much to it too. Like they they they're the ones who inject the the details, you know, in the script, and especially Kevin McGuire with the art and Al Gordon too. You know, him being the anchor, I think he's a great pair with with McGuire. I you know I like Terry Austin in the first issue. Gordon I think is one of McGuire's best anchors, oh, yeah. only because he gives it he kind of completes it in, in this way, like it, it has kind of like a fleshy, rubbery feel to it yeah, without definitely. it being like gross or anything. I think it's perfect. I think every page is excellent. Every single one, even the last one, which is just like debris in space. It, there's not a weak sister in the bunch. I love them. All. You know, and, and you talk about the story and, and then the art and what how so much is being told through the characters. I hadn't thought about it. Really, the, the, the Manhunters are just a MacGuffin in this. I mean, there's there's no real point to it because they, they confront them, they beat them up, and then the bad guy just leaves. I mean, there's really nothing to it. It's really just an excuse for the characters to go on an adventure together and hang out and have and riff off of each other. And a lot of that comes from the body language that McGuire provides, which is amazing. I think yeah. it works for what Giffen and Mateus, DeMatteis are trying to do here, which is, you know, create a wonderful interaction between some JLI members and some non-JLI members. And uh, I hadn't really thought of it that way until you brought it up. Yeah. And you're right, the art is gorgeous throughout this whole book. McGuire is definitely so at the top good. of his game. That last page where they're standing there, you know, that is a George Perez-worthy page of rocks and yeah. asteroids. It's like yeah. something right out of Crisis, you know. It's just, wow, totally breathtaking. And I love some of the lighting effects, like on page 16, where Martian Manhunter is looking down, and he's, he's being lit from below. And he's, he's, oh, he's yeah. all kind of blue, and the light is hitting him, and the shadows are everywhere. Just, wow, the stuff, stuff McGuire does in this book just keeps getting better every issue. And you think about it, he don't, this is issue 10. He really had only been in the industry about a year. You know, Not, yeah, barely. Yeah. Wow. Just amazing to think of someone, you know, right out of the gates able to produce work like this. So, so uh, impressive. You, you kind of want to hate him a little bit, but <laughs> at the same time, it's, it's so great. I mean, just, and it's funny because he kind of didn't come from any traditional, like, I forget who his influences were. I, I certainly, I don't think they were comic book based. You know, he must have been just looking at illustrators or actors, screenshots, you know? Yeah. But he doesn't come from, like, a Bashima school. He doesn't come from a Kirby school or any old, no EC sort of artist as influences work. It's kind of, so it's sort of this fresh new take on a comic book, especially such a comic booky comic book, which is this issue, you know? <laughs> like you said, say. it's basically... <laughs> It's basically just, you know, heroes fighting robots. That's it. It's so simple. And I think that's, that's why I liked it when I was a little kid and rereading it now. It's, it's still, it's so awesome. It still works only because of the details. Now, as a comics professional, maybe you can answer this question for me. On page six, Kat Matui, she's, she's pissed off at Hawkman because Hawkman's being condescending. She says, isn't it obvious in a real sarcastic mm -hmm. way? And the, the word balloon itself is dripping. Now, yes. is that a creative decision by someone like Bob Lapin or Lapin? Or do you think that came from the artist? Or where, where does that kind of typically come from? I think that would come from the writer and specifically okay. Jamie DeMatteis. But because, you know, he had such a specific working relationship with, with Giffen, that could have very well have been a Giffen suggestion. You know, mm. I don't think it was Bob Lappin who, who did it himself. Uh, that That's a pretty big detail that I, I don't think a letter would, you know, a letter back then usually they could make suggestions, but I think they just kind of like did this stuff, you know, did tons of pages a day and they just kind of like took direction. You know, they, they didn't want to think about it too much. They just kind of like hand lettered to death. So I don't think that was Bob's doing, but okay. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was a gem de Mateus. You know, we're talking about, I, and honestly, I don't, 
don't remember what I said 15 seconds ago, so I don't even know if I described it, folks. It is a word balloon, and literally the bottom edge of the word balloon is dripping down, and it's clearly telling you it's dripping sarcasm is what it is. And uh, yeah. it's, it's hysterical in the comic. It's really funny. No, it's pure. It's, it's pure comics. It's the only thing you could get away with in comics. It's one of those few uh, tools that, like, this, that the art form has. It's just, you, you know, utilizing sound effects and panel uh, arrangements. I mean, you know, we have all these things at our disposal, and something like that, that's a perfect detail, like, to try to get that, uh, like, emotion across. I mean, her face sells it, you know. Any other artist, you may need that kind of dripping balloon, but her face selling it and the dripping balloon just really, I mean, you can't miss it. I mean, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> and so one more McGuire note. On page 9 is uh, amazing. It's this three-quarters splash page. And they're smashing open the door, heading into the birthing chamber. And it's Superman, you know, he's, he's just furious and he's angry, but without what we call nowadays the angry red eyes of anger. Uh, and you've got Hawkman <laughs> and Hawkgirl. You got everyone just in an action post smashing the door open and he's clearly shoving it like he's just pushed it open. It's a, that's a great, I'd love that on like on a t-shirt or something. It looks so good. My God. That's, that's the money shot of the issue. That's oh, yeah. the shot, you know, I mean, the splash is nice. Uh, but this is it. This is the, the big one. It's great. Every hero is represented beautifully i mean dr fate looks cool martian manhunter kind of has like a batman pose yeah, he does. uh which he normally doesn't strike but it is awesome i mean it's so good and so clean too i mean there's chaos a lot of activity but it's sort of like even the rubble i mean it's just clean it's so sharp you know not too sharp where you know where it's sterile but it's I think McGuire is, uh, I think he really he killed it. He took the time to draw one. every feather in Hawkman's wings and everything and Hawk Girl, Hawkwoman's wings. That's just impressive. And, uh, yeah. folks, it is time to award the O-Face Award of this issue. And it is, in fact, going to go to Hawkman. You can see him there on page nine in that same action spot. And, uh, he's, his arms are up stretched above him. He's, it looks like he's just had a huge moment of physical exertion. He's right there next to his wife. All his muscles are tensed. He's got that O face. And, uh, <laughs> now, wait a minute. Hold on, Michelle. Wait a minute. I think you took this the wrong way. I'm talking about his mouth is in a perfect O. I don't know what you're thinking about, sir, but this is a family show, okay? If you could keep it clean, I would really appreciate it. Don't Look, it's not my fault he looks like a sex doll. Like, it's fine. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Folks, for the record, that was him, not me who said that. Okay. <laughs> now, I think we have to uh, talk about a couple of things here. As far as the action in the battle goes, I mean, is it wrong or unrealistic to think that, you know, a handful of heroes straight up murders hundreds of Manhunters? I mean, the, the odds, the overwhelming odds, especially like in some issues where our heroes will struggle against maybe two Manhunters, and then here they murder hundreds of them. I, I was sitting there going, is this unrealistic that they could survive this? Or is it, you know, it's kind of like, ah, well, just because comics kind of thing, but it did stick out yeah. in my head. Well, yeah, because comics, but also they were taken by surprise, which is also sort of like stretching credibility. I, I mean, stretching credibility does not apply to like generally superhero comics. You know, you got a guy with wings, a Kryptonian, a Martian man, you know, it's all fantastical. So you kind of give it a little bit of leeway and they're just, they just attack. They're, they're unleashing. They're not, they don't have to worry about hurting anyone. There are no bystanders, no property damage. It's just robots. So they could really just go hog wild on the violence and just destroy. Uh, so I think it's sort of, you know, you could, you, 
you could make a case, I think. I think yeah. it's fine. It is some yeah. powerhouses. I mean, it's Superman, Marshman Hunter, several Green Lanterns, Dr. Fate. I mean, that's, you know, and the, and then the Hawks. But I mean, Green Lantern on his own could take care of him, I think, if he had to. He could take over the whole planet, depending on who's writing him, you know. Uh, it's interesting because Dr. Fate's powers was not questioned. It was They suggested, I think it was Aresia who suggested that he just kind of teleports them into the planet. And his powers just don't work that way. He's exhausted. So it's not really just an easy narrative trick. He's new, it. too. He doesn't He doesn't even... He's not at Kent Nelson's level, because they're still learning. Right, right, right. To, to your point, I, I totally see it, but, you know, then we wouldn't have these two awesome pages of Kevin McGuire drawing uh, blatant destruction. <laughs> you, you, you called it glorious in your recap, and that is absolutely oh, the right word for my it. God. Absolutely. That, yeah. Yeah. And then Superman straight up murders a bunch of robot babies, which is... Oh, come on. I really Realize, you know, they even talk about they're just robots, but it really is unsettling when, when McGuire Good draws Lord. their hands, like reaching out, being like, it's "Come like, on, oh. man, don't get don't get political on this show. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> okay. we need a break from that stuff. Come Fair on, enough. Shag. Fair enough. No, okay. but but that's true. Actually, they're more like kid sized. I don't I don't think those are really fetuses. They're like you know they're like ten year old men. Saying that so. ten, saying that they're kid sized makes it worse. You're making it worse. <laughs> just the term kid size is not should never come out of an adult's mouth. Right. So right. all right, you know, let's let's jump to the most important thing in this issue. This issue has something. No, no, something incredibly important, and that is the introduction of Nort. I personally found those oh, two pages. No. You no. you you fussed on it in the description. I generally found those pages funny. I really did. I love Hal's frustration. Uh, I love Superman's genuine respect for Nord. Um, and for the record here, folks, please reference this issue and note the spelling of Nort. There is no apostrophe, regardless of how many times my guest wrote an apostrophe in his recap. There is no apostrophe in Nort. And if you want to argue about the how to say it, I've got some factual uh, information here. I asked J.M. DeMatteis how to say Nort. He says the G is silent. In fact, the character uh, concept is a combination of Ed Norton from The Honeymooners and Woody Allen. And you can see that sort of like in the vest and, yeah. you know, the belt and everything. And it, it does sort of emote sort of Ed Norton. Right. And now, so he says pronounce it Nort. Then we've got some more information from Kevin Dooley. And this came via a friend of mine named David Ace Gutierrez. According to Kevin Dooley, you're supposed to pinch your nose, pinch the end of your nose when you say Nort and slide <laughs> your fingers off. So it sounds all nasally. It's supposed to be Nort is how Nort is how you would say it. According to I'm Kevin not going to do that. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I feel a little childish doing it, but we're talking about Nort after all. No, I, I actually like these pages a whole lot. I don't, and I don't hate Nort as a character, but it's like, oh man, I don't know. I just, I, it's hard to, to, to feel excited about him. You know, we were like when he first came out yeah. here, when he, this is his debut. So he was fine. It was kind of like a weird stumbling block in the mission. Yeah. It was just sort of like, oh, let's just introduce a character and have some laughs, you know. So I think it works even in the context of this, you know, story. I really enjoy these two pages, though. I, I must say, like, uh, I enjoyed them back then and I liked them this time around. But back then, I just didn't have the context of Nort and who he was or what he would come to be. So none of us knew that. Yeah. Well, just no, a couple no. of things I want to point out. How, you know, when, when he shows up, Hal Jordan has these huge, huge empty word balloons with these little tiny words that go, oh no. Yeah. Oh no. So which, which clearly says he's frustrated. He's rolling his, he's literally rolling his eyes in his, you know, in his mask, which is funny. It's so you know, good. Marshall Manor says, who is this? And Hal finishes the line, idiot. The word you're looking for is idiot. And then, you know, yeah. again, Superman is again telling Nort how much he appreciates, you know, how, how impressed he is by him. Mark Manhunter pulls him aside and actually says, in the middle of this adventure, Superman 
Superman. A moment of your time, please. And it's just sort of, it's that moment where you pull somebody aside at a party and go, "Don't talk to that guy. Don't. Yeah. He's bad news." <laughs> you know. And then later on, when they leave him, because you know, North North's total fixation is on finding a bathroom, or as he calls it, a John. And mm-hmm. you know, they tell North to stay behind while they go find the Manhunters and guard the John. It's a matter of the reputation of the core depends upon it. I just <laughs> I laugh my head off at this. I thought it's you're right. It, it sort of interrupts the flow of the story, but I don't care. It is hysterical. No, but it's a good little distraction, I think. It's a, it's a much – actually, uh, now that I think about it, it's a much-needed distraction to the story. You know, it just kind of gives a little tone shift uh, before it, things got really dark and yeah. babies started getting burned alive. It, I mean, it's <laughs> oh wonderful. God. I think it's great. Your words, not mine, sir. <laughs> All right. Now, moving on to the backup. You said you enjoyed the backup. For me, I, I, I thought there were a couple good laughs about Granny Goodness in mm-hmm. an, an appearance by Kilowog, which is awesome because he'll become a big feature in this book later. But I feel like it's just kind of filler. Did you, so you felt differently? No, it's it's total filler, but I enjoyed it because of the Giffen art. I like. I think this is one of the rare moments where Giffen is pure Giffen. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? He's not really aping a style or reappropriating someone someone's uh, stylistic tics. You know, I think this is just pure Giffen. It's a rare, beautiful thing, and I think it's great. I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, if it was someone else drawing it, it would be, it would read as extra, extra filler, like for real. And then this time, I think it's, it's some really nice work on his behalf. Of the three backups, I do have to say, artistically, I think I like it the best. The first one, I felt like he relied a little too heavily on the nine panel grid, uh, mm-hmm. which again works for Legion of Superheroes, but didn't work for JLI. I felt like he does use a page of nine panel grid in this one, but it, it's done effectively during a tense moment. So I think of the three backups, I think artistically it's my favorite. And it's, it's cute. Again, you know, they're, they're the, the real world Green Lantern Citadel. But I'd love, someone needs to make up a, you know, that opening segment on the real world. They say things get real. Someone needs to do that for the Green Lantern <laughs> back then, please. Write that in, send it to us. We'll read it on the air. What's interesting about Giffen in this time is that he really wasn't drawing too much. I think he was really just concentrating on writing or plotting and doing layouts. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, laying out a page is a super important element in, in comics. It's just kind of the, the part of the language. You know, where, where, um, so Kevin McGuire doesn't have to think about it. He just kind of goes straight to pencils. Uh, that's basically Giffen's job here is just to kind of stage everything and give, every, that's why everything has a uniform look to it. But in this time in his career, I think he was getting a lot of heat for swiping from Argentinian comic, uh, cartoonist, uh, Jose Munoz. That was mm-hmm. his big thing. And I think the comics journal wrote like a, a complete list of swipes, like with specific examples. And it kind of, yeah, I wouldn't say got him in trouble, but it it was like, you know, it was a hit piece. It was like, there's something wrong. This guy's straight up swiping. In, in Giffen's defense, he was like, I just, I wasn't straight up swiping. I was just sort of in love with this other artist's style and it took over. And that's just how I saw the world. And that's how I saw my own art. And I totally get that. That that's Giffen that's been Giffen's thing since like the very beginning and it still is. And people don't like him for that. They don't like his work for that. But I do. I you know, I, he was essentially introducing a European style to an American audience through the lens of a superhero comic book. I think that's awesome. I think superheroes should have a varied look, as many varied looks as possible. But I don't know. Giffen got Giffen wasn't drawing too much. So I think it this backup is really special in that it was like one of the few things he was drawing in this time mm-hmm. and it was a pure it's pure Giffen like I said it's Absolutely. pure Giffen and, and I would say that the period is after he left Legion of Superheroes it, with the Paul Levitt stuff and mm-hmm. before he gets comes back for Legion of Superheroes with Tom and Mary Beerbaum uh, right. which is, is this this era where you're talking about and 
I've said it before. I, I say it probably every episode we talk about it, but I, that Legion of Superheroes, the five year later stuff, unbelievable. Yeah, it's uh, great. Again, heavy influence uh, from that uh, Argentinian artist, but wow, it's just powerful, powerful stuff. Some of the best comics out there, and so different. What's weird because I think he kind of did swipe a little bit, but I, look, I'm not coming down on swiping at all. I think swiping is like, you know, it's just something you do. I'm not condemning. I'm not outright condemning swiping. It's just sort of like an exercise. It's a practice, mm-hmm. you know, that, that artists kind of do on deadline or when you're young. You know, it's fine to learn uh, through it. It's a shortcut. It's a great way to just kind of get pages done. You move beyond it. Everyone does. It. Everyone has swiped. I don't, I don't even think people do it these days. I, I, you know, maybe they do their swiping different things, but back then you just swiped it. You wanted a cool pose. You got a Gil Kane page. You know, you wanted some rubble. You got a George Perez page. You know, you <laughs> just got, you stole a little bit from here and there and, and, and it's fine. I don't think that's what Giffen was doing like entirely. I think he was just sort of like absorbing a style. Yeah. I've read his responses. He, he says he never had Nunes's art on his board while he was drawing. He says, right. Was, and that's kind of what evoking. swiping is. You sort yep. of just really just, I mean, it, it, it's short of tracing, you know, he was certainly no JJ Birch, Oof. you know, who I know you're a big fan of. Well, uh, no, he he's the guy who represented Firestorm for a long time. Yep. Now, let's just for a little history, folks, jo- Joe Brozowski changed his name to J.J. Birch for a while, and he drew Firestorm for many, many years, and I was a huge fan of him, and Michelle opened my eyes uh, through the Who's Who podcast commentary, uh, through the comments on that about this. So please continue. i just given some people some backstory here. Well, no, Joe Brzezowski is just kind of like this. Uh, I think he studied under Neil Adams. He worked at Continuity Studios. So he comes from like just a kind of like mercenary commercial background. You know, just let's we have a client. Let's just get it done. And I just I'm just not into it. It takes me away from the story. You read these comics and it's just like, oh, I recognize that swipe. I recognize that panel. Oh, that that composition is the same as like an old Neil Adams comic. You know, and it, like I said, you move through it. You get through that. You develop your own style, your own voice. But with him, it's constant. It's aggressive even. I mean, for decades. I mean, and it takes a lot of effort to like pick up a comic and just look for a pose and, just, and then, and then copy it. You know, it's a, it's weird because Rich Buckler, right? You're familiar with Rich Buckler who oh, yeah. Deathlock oh, yeah. and, you know. Well, love is all sorts of Yeah. He at least has a philosophy behind it, which was, I'm just a hired gun. And if Jack Kirby was drawing FF, but he needed a fill in issue, my job is to make the transition as smooth as possible. So the reader doesn't get too jarred, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to appropriate Jack Kirby style or Neil Adams style or whatever book had a certain art. That's back when like books had one creative team for a long time. Mm -hmm. So that at least has a philosophy, you know, it's just a work mentality. JJ Birch, man, he doesn't have a, it's so cynical. It's so specifically cynical. It's like, it's almost like he doesn't think comics are worth doing original art for or something. You know, it's, it's not even like they're not worth it, you know, like not even copying it well, you know, like he went from copying just a bunch of comic books. And then when he changed to JJ Birch, he just copied a different set of comic artists. You know, he appropriated Alex Toth and terribly. And how do you mess up Alex Toth? You know what I mean? (laughs) And it's funny because I think the editor at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, but he, Denny O'Neill, he was kind of telling, they're, they're presenting J.J. Birch as like a new artist. Right. Until like a few months later, they're like, no, nah, it's actually Joe Brzezowski. He just wanted to try something different. 
which is commendable in and of itself. But you just now you're expressing yourself through another set of swipe files. Like, come on. And it breaks my heart because those John Ostrander stories are great. They're bulletproof. They're actually good. And they would have been so much better with like someone just decent, you know, just someone with their own voice, you know, they, they so it's just weird. They definitely deserve a lot better art. No doubt about it. Now, I liked his J.J. Birch issues. Now, I, and again, I don't, I don't recognize the swiping. I'm not good at that. I don't see it. So when I read the J.J. Birch issues, I actually felt like it looked like a lot of this backup, this Giffen backup. This is sort yeah. of the style he went for with J.J. Birch. I felt like was this kind of totally. Yeah, yeah. and that's and I liked that. I remember, I remember at the time thinking the only person I know who draws like this is Keith Giffen, and I was like, wow, this is cool. Now, again, with the swiping, you started pointing it out to me. A couple of ones that have really jumped out at me is like there's an mm-hmm. issue of Firestorm in the Legends storyline where. Firestorm's all this rubble's falling on him, and I was like, "Wow, that's a great panel!" And then I realized he swiped it from Pat Broderick's cover of issue number fifteen, and that just <laughs> yeah. really ticked me off. Um, right. the, the one that you pointed out to me was in Who's Who, where there's this great one he did of I can never say his name right, Stalinovok or whatever. It's it's the Steel Wolf, the the, oh, the wolf, yeah, yeah from uh, Firestorm, the Russian. Captain America, basically, who looks like Joe Stalin. And there's a great who's who entry of him standing there, a lot of propaganda. I'm like, wow, that's great. And then you pointed out that he totally swiped uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. Praise be his name. You have to fix that in editing, pal. You got to keep up. Anyway, um, (laughs) so uh, he totally stole his pose of Roy Raymond TV detective. And I showed it to my wife because we were sitting in bed and I was flipping through comics and stuff and looking at this and going, and she was in a rare moment. She doesn't care anything about superheroes, comic books, anything. In a rare moment, she's like, oh, what you doing? And so I was like, here, I'll show you. She got visibly angry. And she's like, how can he do that? How can he just copy someone else's work? Is that allowed? Isn't it copyrighted? That's against the law. I mean, she was so angry. Yeah, it's 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 a very uh, it's a it's personal weird. thing. It's a personal thing to people, you know. It yeah, it's me. it's weird. You know, a people suggested to David Mazzucchelli, artist of Batman Year One, oh. uh, that he that he sue Brzezowski for all the work, or at least demand DC pay him something for the usage of like like straight up usage of panels for the Catwoman mini that uh, JJ Birch drew. I think I think he went back wow. to Brzezowski at that point. I'm not sure. I, I forget the timeline. But anyway, my point of Dave Mazzucchelli didn't sue. He just thought it was super weird. But the thing is, it's so aggressive for decades. You're just doing this. It's so weird. I mean, it's, I mean, it's like they're just making donuts. We're just making comics. We're just, mm. it's just a product. You know, there's milk and eggs, newspapers and comics. Like who cares? It's just a job. What it's almost like weird on my part to notice these things. You're not supposed to notice it. You know, these comics were made for like eight year olds in the eighties. You're not supposed to like look back, but the world's different. We are looking back in really specific detail at these things and you notice these kind of like tendencies it's just super i mean i don't know as an artist as, as a reader even uh, i don't need i don't think i have to know how to draw to recognize these things kind of the same way you did you recognize it and it's just it's just odd man it's just odd but anyway to bring it back to justice league giffen about a year after this this story he started kind of using kevin mcguire style he started using the little curled brackets for a mouth you know that signature you know the kevin mcguire grimace he started adding wrinkles to people the people's brows and stuff a cleaner line no complete shadows 
covering people's faces. Giffen just kind of like fell in love with Kevin Maguire so much that he just drew like him for about a couple of years. That's how he did his invasion issue. Hmm. Uh, his, his pre five year later, like five year later, five years later, that's mm-hmm. pure Giffen. He, he res- he reverted back to himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right before that, it's pure Maguire. I mean, check it out. You got to see it. It's kind of funny, actually. And I think, you know, I'm charmed by that. You know, I don't think I'm not offended by it or anything. I just thought it was curious that here he is working closely with a guy who's like, what, 10, 20 years his junior. And he loves his style so much that he kind of just like, I think I'm going to add a couple of details to my own style. That's cool. So. I mean, you know, you work with coworkers, you pick up traits from them, and that's awesome. Yeah. I, uh, now, un- unlike Millennium, which I did not reread for this podcast, when we get to the Invasion crossovers in about a year, I will be happy to reread Invasion, because I love that. I mean, you're going to get Keith Giffen, Todd McFarlane, and Bart Sears at the height of their powers. Oh, yeah, I will totally yeah. reread Invasion. And yeah, we have that's a, great. If you're interested, folks, we have an awesome podcast on our network, by the way, called First Strike Invasion, where our buddies Siskoid and Boss are going through Invasion issue-by-issue issue crossover. It's a fun, fun look at the, that historical piece. Lots of fun. Speaking of fun, there were lots of good jokes in this issue, too. We've, we've kind of brought it down with some heavy topics, but there are some funny bits <laughs> in this thing. You know, Martian Manhunter mocking Hawkman's seriousness. Uh, he talks about how it's a tragedy, how Thanagar lost Hawkman as a member of their police force. is hysterical how sarcastic it is. Hawkman even calls him out on it. And then uh, Hawkman says Superman's uh, punching was a little too theatrical for him. And then uh, Hawkgirl says, Mr. Rogers is too theatrical for your taste, darling. And, uh, this is, and then he says, this is what I get for working with my wife. I mean, there's just some genuinely funny stuff. Yeah. I, and, and again, the granny goodness stuff in the, in the backup. Lots and lots and lots of fun. So, you know what, before we, uh, since we're talking about, well, you know what, I better hold my horses. We're starting to head towards the uh, Bwahaha War, but you know what, we need to talk about the house ads first. So we've got a few house ads in here that are worth talking about. First up is Cinder and Ash. You want to talk about this one for a second? Beautiful. I mean, it's great. It's it's drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, Praise be his, his name. name. Well done, sir. Much Come better. on. Come on, Shag. I guess I left you hanging in the other one, so it's, it's an eye for an eye. Uh, but Cinder and Ash is a great mini. It's written by Firestorm co-creator Jerry Conway. Mm-hmm. And it's a cool little four-issue mini, which I think recently got collected, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but you would find these issues in the bin, and it's a great little mini. Uh, the, the shot is of they're like two in, uh, investigators, kind of slash bounty hunters. One of them called Cinder, and the other one is Ash. And they're kind of like dodging bullets on Bourbon Street uh, with a backdrop, a, a serpent of a soldier holding a small child on his back. So... It's great. It's a great image. Definitely compelling. It made me want to pick up the book uh, whenever I came across it. Many and it says, uh, for a price, they'll solve anything if they like you. And it has their business card. And it has a phone number, which would be interesting to call nowadays to see who it goes to. Uh, and ask him, <laughs> hi, can we hire Cinder Nash? And this book, interestingly enough, is responsible for Jerry Conway coming back to comics. He, uh, oh, really? You know, he was gone from comics for about 30 years. He's out in Hollywood writing TV shows and being a, a big superstar kind of guy. And he, he was at a convention in another country and they were celebrating his, his Cinder and Ash book is what they want. And they invited him for, which is kind of strange because it had been like, you know, 20 years since he'd written it. Mm-hmm. And there at that convention, he met Jeff Johns and they got talking. Oh. And that sort of led to him eventually coming back and doing some comics, which is totally cool. Interesting. Up next ad is, it's a, it's just a generic house ad. Clearly they, they needed an ad and they were running out of time. It's just, 
just some snowflakes. It's a purple background with some snowflakes. But the stories mentioned are kind of fun. It says, great new gifts coming for the season. The greatest Superman stories ever told. It says, uh, it's got introduction by John Byrne, stories by Siegel and Schuster, Wayne Boring, Jack Kirby, Alan Moore, and others. Then they mentioned the Man of Steel trade paperback, which of course is the John Byrne one, forward by Ray Bradbury. Interesting. I don't remember that. Then Batman's Son of the Demon by Mike W. Barr and Jerry Bingham, uh, reprints the hardcover with, without the introduction. And it's got an all new wraparound cover with Jerry Bingham. And as I said before, nothing of consequence came out of Son of the Demon. Absolutely nothing was, was, uh, that you would want to remember came out of that story. So. Well, it, it's kind of, they wrote it out of continuity, right? That's sort of like a pre-Elseworld exactly. story. Exactly. Exactly. And it should have stayed there. Tim Drake should still be Robin. Damn it. But anyway. Yeah. I, I kind of like Batman Son of the Demon. I haven't read it in decades, but I remember liking it a whole lot. These three books are all great, uh, but this ad is really underwhelming. I don't, yeah. You're totally right. I think it was just kind of rushed last minute. I mean, they don't even show the, the covers. You know, that's kind of yep. like the visual pull for this stuff. So, eh, whatever. It worked. You know, it just got the information out Back there. then, trade paperbacks weren't a thing, you know? So interesting. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And then finally, there is a really unique ad that as a kid bothered the hell out of me, but I figured it out for this podcast. It is for the Star Trek Next Generation miniseries. And it has uh, it's this all-black background with these, like, vertical lines and a couple of what sort of look like stars. And it says, of course, Space, the Final Frontier. It's a new Enterprise with a new crew, but the thirst for adventure remains. All new adventures based on the hot new TV series by Mike Carlin, Pablo Marcos, and I can't remember Mr. Garzon's first name. But it says, a six-issue miniseries monthly from DC Comics, Star Trek The Next Generation. And it's got this little tiny, kind of poorly drawn image, and it's really small, <laughs> of the Enterprise. Um, and this ad bugged the hell out of me for years. Like, why would they do such a crappy ad for Star Trek The Next Generation? Obviously, they were proud of this property. And I figured it out when I was prepping for this episode, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, that this issue, this ad, hit the stands 17 days after Encounter at Farpoint Air, which is the very first episode of Star Trek Next Generation. So hmm. other than maybe Mike Carlin reading the script or something of Encounter at Farpoint, probably the people working on the comic had never seen the show. I mean, I don't know, maybe they invited him to set or gave him stills. I don't know how they got them the information. But the show right. wasn't even on the air when they had to develop this ad. So now I totally get why the ad is so sparse and boring. But Yeah, it's so it, vague almost. Oh, yeah, but it, it yeah. bothered the heck out of me, you know, because especially as I was, a, you know, by this point, I had seen Encounter Farpoint, so why hadn't they? You know, you know, all of, of whatever world it was at this point. It's a disappointing ad for, especially since DC had, had such a powerhouse ads for the DC Star Trek comics previously. You know, they had gotten, Yeah, I mean... Was it, well, yeah, go on. Jerome, Jerome K. Moore, I think, did the later covers, but his... I don't know who was doing the ads for... Maybe it was... Um, Chuck Patton had done some of the ads, I think. The, the, the old Star Trek ads in the comics were, the Kirkwood mm -hmm. era were amazing. Uh, the ones on, uh, who had those? Marvel had that property for a while. Yeah, they had right? for sure the, too. Yep. Yeah. You know, I've never read a Star Trek comic what? book. Never done that. Yeah. I've never, I've just never gotten around to it. I have the who's who issues uh -huh. just because the art's super nice and the super awesome, uh, Howard Chaykin painted covers, but I've never sat down and did read you, a comic. Did you watch the show? I kind of haven't either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this has been fun. Um, in fact, I'm just going to go ahead and I think I am going to reach out to Rob Liefeld and try and re-record this episode and get someone who actually makes sense. Oh. He definitely hates Star Trek. I, I have it on good authority. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't know. I hope he does. Oh, so wrong. So many people are writing angry letters right now. Uh, sales on Copra just dropped. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. I was going to get that Joe Brzezowski That's bump. right. Damn. <laughs> Damn it. All right. All right, folks. Well, now we've we've hinted about it all episode long. Michelle is going to defend Millennium in a segment I like to call... Character Spotlight. 
This is where the guest is asked to share some thoughts on one of the characters or situations from the DC Universe. This time out, Michelle is going to cover Millennium. So everyone strap in. Well, first of all, I mean, to get to Millennium, we got to go through the writer's like career. You know, Steve Englehart, the main architect of this uh, event, you know, okay. he was a Marvel guy. He was generally a Marvel guy, did a Captain America Avengers, and he was hired by DC back in the seventies to inject personality into the justice league books or the, the main title, actually the only justice league book at the time, the previous this Engelhart, they were kind of just like capes and costumes, kind of like interchangeable, but you know, his brief run spanned a year back in uh, 77. It was only 10 issues. Issues 139 through 146, and then 149, sorry, 139 to 146, and then 149, 150. There was a, a little break in there. I believe Paul Levitz wrote those issues. Anyway, hmm. uh, they're good. They're great. They're cool. They're like snappy, fast-paced, weird adventures. They sometimes read like fever dreams. They're super great. They're <laughs> awesome. And uh, they're actually awesomely drawn by the super underrated Dick Dillon, who mm. I love. I've grown oh, yeah. to really love. I've always liked him, but I really appreciate him now. But these issues have never been collected. In fact, as of mm. this recording, only issue 146 is on Comixology, and that may be because it's kind of, uh, it's got Red Tornado in there, uh, so mm. maybe that's why, but I don't know. They're great. Dig through those bins. They're inexpensive. They're well worth it. But anyway, have you read those issues by any, by any chance? I have, but it's been, I, I would have read them probably 20 years ago, because I, I have a complete yeah. collection of Justice League between the hardcover archives, the showcases, and then my collection starts at, I think, issue 111 or something like that, and I have pretty much 111 up through the new 52. Um, okay, okay. So I've, so I've read them, but it's I bought them so long ago, I can't remember. I look, at, I look at the covers now, I'm like, I have no idea what this comic's about. Oh my god, they're so good. Definitely worth rereading. I mean, okay. dig them up, they're awesome. But, you know, he did a two-issue story in there, 140, 141, where he used the Manhunter cult, which was created by Jack Kirby uh, a couple years prior. Uh, he used them as the villains, you know. Cut to a year later, Engelhart leaves comics to write novels in Spain or whatever. Uh, let's not forget, he's the guy who brought back Deadshot. I mean, he based, I mean, he took Deadshot, rescued him from obscurity, and with Marshall Rogers, who redesigned him, kind of like made him an, an awesome character. So the, his, his, Steve Englehart's run on Detective Comics is classic. It's great. He's, so we already know his resume. Right. He's awesome. Left the country, returned, because comics is good like that. He came back, did Coyote, you know, uh, create own thing. He eventually did Green Lantern. He was tough to do Green Lantern because sales were so terrible. Even Dave Gibbons couldn't save Green Lantern. <laughs> and that's, Len Wein said this. Len Wein hired uh, Steve Englehart and Joe Staten, uh, artist Joe Staten, to kind of, uh, I don't know, boost Green Lantern and boost they did. I mean, the sales were great. They just climbed and climbed and it became a hit. They relaunched with Green Lantern Corps, you know. It, it was a hit, really? I had no idea. I mean, yeah, people don't talk about that, but, you know, it's never cited as like a big seller, but it kind of was according to all the interviews I've read with Engelhart and editors of the time. So much so that, you know, after the huge Legends crossover that happened a year before Millennium, Steve Englehart was tapped to do, you know, to sort of like come up with ideas with An Andrew Helfer, the editor at the time of the Justice League books and the next event. He was sort of in charge of that. And they kind of like came up with this thing called Millennium, you know, based on like a throwaway detail that Englehart wrote. And issue 200 of Green Lantern, I think it was Green Lantern, then 201 was Green Lantern Corps. Anyway, sort of something about like the, the next century of powers and the evolution. It was just kind of a throwaway detail that then morphed into this huge mega 
event. And that's the history of millennium. But I'm not, you know, let's get nostalgia out of the way, you know, from the perspective of a little kid who at that point just immersed himself into the DCU. Millennium just looked cool. You know, it was just like all these colorful heroes in one place. You know what I mean? It just looked really cool. And unlike Legends, which had all the heroes meet up for the story's climax, Millennium had everyone sort of just standing around in one big room talking sometimes. I mean, there there's a lot of action in these issues, but come on, to like an eight, nine-year-old, that was kind of awesome. It's kind of like <laughs> why kids historically bought things like Justice League and World's Finest or Secret Wars or whatever, because it's got everyone in one big story, you know? So they're all there, right? That's just the fact that they're the colorful kind of like the cover to the JLI 10. It's just cool. It's like candy, right? But it's more than nostalgia, you know? I mean, it's kind of like what you say, Shaga, you know, find your joy. Mm-hmm. That, that, that plays a big part into this because, I mean, it's not nostalgia that I'm defending Millennium. This, is, this isn't just about revisiting like an old storyline through rosy tinted glasses. This is about like us needing to reckon with Steve Englehart, man. The guy had a vision. You know, and he tried his best in the face of a like crippling impossible schedule and creative resistance and still seeing it through. You know, he had to tell the story. <laughs> you know, the odds were against him and he still like came up with it and told it. You know, I just kind of love that this guy took a concept that he fleshed out like 10 years ago. This like throwaway storyline from Justice League. You know, they're just a couple of bad guys for a couple of issues. This for a long from a long forgotten run, by the way. Mm-hmm. And he made a major event out of it. I think that's kind of cool and like egotistical and a, like it just warped. I think that's kind of cool. And it kind of led this editorially mandated event. Like he had to do it. You know, that was his job. You know, there, I think there's a beauty in that sort of enforcement, whether it was by design or by the demands of the deadline or whatever. Plus, I mean, the thing was drawn by Joe Staten, which I don't think you like too much. Like, I, I, I know, I know you like well, 70 Staten. I love, I love 70 Staten. He's on, like, Showcase 100. Oh my gosh! It's like one of the most beautiful comics. It's Crisis Before There Was Crisis. It's a yeah, beautiful that's comic. That's a crazy issue. It's, crazy it's issue, amazing. But, it's amazing. But you don't crazy. like, you don't like 80s Staten, well, okay. huh? Okay. You're, I won't say you're making me rethink things, because you're not, and that would be foolish, and you don't have that kind of power. Sorry, sir. Um, give me, give me another minute. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, though, you make a fair point about the, the pressure and the mandate. I mean, he had to write eight issues of this comic in probably two months. That's an incredible amount of, when you normally write one comic a month, and suddenly you have to write eight comics, uh, over two months, plus your regular Green Lantern Corps issues that were coming yes. out. Yeah, it's and, a lot of work. Staten drew, if I if I'm not mistaken, I think he drew every issue of Millennium. Which yeah, Joe Staten penciled. Yeah, Ian Gibson inked, and you, you, I think you're familiar with the Green Lantern Corps. Ian Gibson was a, a British artist uh-huh. from, from 2008. He came over, he did a couple films, and they were great. They looked great, and Joe Staten was great on Green Lantern Corps. I think 80s Joe Staten, it's like pro at the top of his game. He's a little sharper. He's more refined. I think the 70s stuff is cool to look at, but it's a little cruder. Which you know, hmm. I'm a fan of just crude early artwork from specific artist but i think he was he was slick enough where it worked i think it worked wonderfully for the green lantern corps and i think it was great for millennium now i don't know i mean look to his credit joe staten millennium was yeah a weekly book what's that eight issues in only two months that's right. 22 pages an issue exactly. and i looked sometimes 23 pages Ugh. and the pages don't look rushed at all like you could tell these things you could notice these things he did not skimp on any details there are no shortcut pages 
like, you know, all silhouettes, all white pages, no repeated photo stats the way Giffen used to do, mm-hmm. uh, the way a lot of people do. I mean, there are no shortcuts. That alone, that alone should give Millennium a pass. You know, God knows how many meals Staten had to miss with his family to make sure every member of Infinity Incorporated or something <laughs> was accounted for. Like, come on, you know, just so like fandom could respond with a collective like, oh, Millennium sucks. Like, no, it does not suck. It does. You are wrong. I don't think you have to know the ins and outs of how something works. You know, you don't have to know that Joe Staten drew a bunch of issues in a short time span, but maybe, you know, a little empathy towards the process could go a long way. You know, no one goes into projects hoping that something turns out crappy. You're just, you just kind of try your best with what you got, you know, and at the time it wasn't that bad. You, you know? make a lot of valid I mean, points. You make the, the work that went into it. And also, I mean, the, the story itself wasn't terrible. The idea of coming to earth, the guardians going away, creating the next generation of protectors, and then creating a, a, a hook that allowed every comic book that DC offered to have this awesome subplot point where someone in their life was a sleeper agent is pretty cool. Right. And it did provide for some really, when the writers cared to try, it did provide some interesting stories. Some writers didn't care totally. and, and threw the plot point and wasted it. No, totally. Or, I don't know why or, Legion had stories in there. Like, I mean, it just didn't work as well. With Laurel Kent, uh, yeah. And if you, and if you notice, there are no Titans crossovers. I mean, there's like the, the spotlight issues, but those are, those are secondary. The main Marv Wolfman written stories, the, the mainline issue of, or title of Titans, they're absent. So it's Swamp hmm. Thing, you know? Interesting. Um, so the, you, you kind of had a, I don't know if they had a choice or not, you know, it's your job, you know, you're like working on these titles. You could be a part of this huge thing that could maybe boost sales for your own book or not. They were just kind of like working it out, you know, and I agree. Like if anything, Millennium as a whole, just the eight issues uh, or the event, actually, it just collapsed under its own weight, man. It just, but, and like everything, it, it could have used some trimming. It could have used a lot of trimming. But I mean, that's the thing about producing like massive content at this rapid clip. It's product. You just have to keep that forward momentum going. And, you know, Engelhart had to work with what he laid down. It was his idea. He was responsible for this stuff. And look, I feel like Engelhart was trying to overcompensate in a weird way. Like you said, like the ideas were cool, but there were like two major through lines that were kind of forced to mingle in a weird way. But you're right. Like left alone, they're, they're pretty compelling. You know what? Like a cosmic cult, vigilante robot sleeper agents trying to take over the world that writes itself, right? <laughs> And on the other hand, you have like a race of little blue creeps who just want to have a galactic orgy with warrior women <laughs> who then plan to force random people of Earth to carry their faux 70s hippie dippy philosophy by gifting them powers. <laughs> like, if that's not a solid origin story, I don't know what it is. Oh my gosh, I think you broke me. Uh... That's just great. They didn't, he didn't, he was overcompensating. He did not need to like put those two things together. You could, you could feel the tension, you know? And I gotta say, I had no idea that fandom felt this way. Really? Up until, up until a few years ago when I started listening to podcasts. Oh, okay. And it was from crisis to crisis. It didn't go easy mm-hmm. on it. Legion of substitute podcasters skinned it alive. They okay. hate that thing. All right. And, and just about every proud member of the fire and water podcast network hates it to death. <laughs> I've heard you guys. I hear a lot of your shows. No, no one likes it. No one even like gives it a pass. Like that they don't true. even throw it a bone. I don't recall Wizard ever making fun of it, and they made a they made fun of a lot of stuff. You know, Hero Illustrated. No one talked about Millennium. Like it was kind of like it came and went. Hero it. Illustrated. Oh my gosh, you're throwing well, you're throwing away reference out there, man. I mean that, but that's the stuff we read before blog before blog posts and stuff. Like that's that was the nature. That's how you connected with fandom in a weird way. I have Hero Illustrated number one sitting in a pile right next to my computer, so I'm not knocking it. <laughs> 
Um, no, I love that stuff, even just for nostalgic purposes. Oh, yeah. It's like cool to look through, but. But anyway, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, you know, you're you're right. Most people that, and at least in my circles, don't like Millennium, and we take pot shots at it, and it, and it's unfair. We take it's it's the low road where it's an easy hit. But you have made me not rethink necessarily the comics themselves, but the production process that went behind it is something to think about and something to respect. The volume they had to produce, the short amount of time they had to, the pressure they were in, the basic nugget of a story that's there. So I would have to say from a pure production point of view, I could certainly give Millennium a much bigger pass than I had previously. Well, what about the story itself? I mean, I mean, what's the criticism? Let's talk about the why it's bad. Why okay. people think it's bad? They say what? It's overwritten. Like, I, I've heard what that. 80s comic isn't overwritten? Ever heard of the X Men? Like, ever heard of Chris Claremont? These things are overwritten. Well, it, you know in what your I mean? Annual crossover, though, you don't want to have a lot of staying around, talky talking. You want a lot of action. Now, I, I, that's a criticism other people lay at it. I don't even remember it well enough to lay that criticism at it. What I remember sticking out in my mind was the Joe Staten art. I, I realize you said it is a more refined style and it is definitely stylistic. It is not a style that appealed to me. Even as he goes right. on to do the Guy Gardner series, I mean, I just, that style makes my skin crawl. I just can't stand it. It's yeah, the, that, the big that's heads, almost a little different. The big heads and the weird elbows <laughs> yeah. and everything, and it just doesn't sit well with me. The other right. thing about it was, unfortunately, one of the main components of the Millennium Storyline is the New Guardians. Mm-hmm. And where Engelhart did fail there was to create a set of interesting new characters. He did not create a set of interesting characters. Well, he created a, you know, cookie cutter, Chris Claremont style, international breadth of characters. I mean, so the Chris, and, and I'm not making fun of Chris Claremont, but if you look at it, he, when he designed the X-Men, he very purposefully hit a whole bunch of different nationalities to give a mm-hmm. you know, sort of United Nations of a team. And he does that here too. Engelhart does that where he tries to create a United Nations worth of characters, but they're not, they're not all that likable. They're not right. their powers aren't that interesting, and they don't do much. They're not very effective. So that is a lot of reason why Millennium didn't sit well with me. I mean, yeah, it's a little forced. They're definitely embarrassing stereotypes, you know. Well, but at least it tried to be culturally diverse. You know, that's like I mean, they had a gay key character. You know, that's something that comics are still struggling with. You know, that's a that's a very hot topic. You know, it has been for the past few years. And there he was, up in front and center. It wasn't a great, likable character, but at least, at least it existed. It was represented, you know. In fact, New Guardians was one of the earliest, quite possibly the first mainstream comic to even mention AIDS. Like, and this is during okay. the tail end of the Reagan administration. Like, it's not a good comic, but that's worth something, right? That's like, he, yeah. you know, Engelhart was trying to mention things, and here I was, like, some little kid and I'm just like, I'm absorbing all this stuff. And it's just kind of like, it makes sense in the world. And you watch television, there's MTV, there's this comic, there's music. It just all made sense. So it, it wasn't like, Oh, these are painful stereotypes. It was, it's just like, Oh, there's another character that kind of don't like, but he's talking about <laughs> stuff, you know, the, look at all, look, Floronic man, who, what, like weird. And, but I'll take it. I'll take it. You know, huh? there, there are no hawk woman but it's it's characters you know and anyway new guardians i don't know if you know this but it was promised to Engelhart as a non-code really book. you know you're meaning it would have been you know no comics code of authority right, ratings right. restrictions and i think his plan was to have it be a more adult pre-vertigo type of you know exploration of sex and violence and politics and that was his plan hmm. but that changed last minute so i think that's why he only wrote one issue and by the second issue he just he was gone i think he just left he didn't leave comics again but he didn't work for dc that that much i don't know if millennium did well financially either i mean it was just a big event it's probably you know too blunt of a thing to tell like i'm sure it just did fine Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. 
but it was kind of telling that he just never came back. I think it was maybe it may have been because of the new guardians. I mean, it must have done well because they gave them a book and it lasted twelve issues. So Who, uh, well, back then, yeah. twelve you, you didn't get four issues, six issues, and get canceled. You usually got twelve. So I, I don't know. I don't know that it did well. But who who took over after Engelhart then? I, I believe it was Carrie Bates. Uh, Carrie Bates. Okay. He may, right. There may have been one or two other writers toward the tail end when they were just like trying to pass it around, trying to pass it off to someone yeah. else. <laughs> but anyway, back to Millennium. You know, I know it's not a classic. It's nowhere near being a classic. But let's talk about the classics. What's a classic? Like Crisis. You know, like yes. that's. But that's an incomprehensible mess. That's a. You say it's that a really careful there, sir. No, it's a. It's an awesome book to look at. But story wise, it's pure inside baseball. You know, tr- that was my, that, it's not though, I'll argue with you, because that was my first exposure to the bigger DC universe. I had read Firestorm, but I had never read any, really anything, and maybe I had one or issue Justice League or something as a kid, but never read any other DC universe. So when I picked up Crisis, yes, it is definitely jumping in the deep end of a continuity rich mm-hmm. pool. But you know what? I thrived in it. I was like, wow, I gotta figure this out. Right. It's like trying to pick up Legion of Superheroes in the middle of a storyline. Right. Yeah, it's a comp- incomprehensible, but you know what? People figure out, find their way. People find their way and can swim through. Kids are ex- amazingly made of rubber. I mean, we talked about missing issues and it didn't mm-hmm. matter. That's how it was to kids back then. You pick up Crisis and you're like, oh, I could figure right. this out. If someone picked up Millennium, they could have done the same thing. They could have gone, oh, I don't know who all these characters are. I don't know who the manners are, but I'll figure right. this out. And so I don't, incomprehensible, I think is unfair. So I would say, yes, Crisis is a classic. I think Legends is a okay. classic. Okay. Yeah. I'll agree with that. Yeah. That, that is a well regarded issue, uh, series. You know, even though John Byrne hates it, I think, uh, I don't know why, cause I think it's great. I think he had different aspirations for it. He wanted it to turn out differently. Maybe. I don't know. That's just an editorial thing on its own. Yeah. Legends is awesome. I like, I love Crisis. You know, I'm, just, I'm mm-hmm. I, and you're totally right. I just, I think I'm thinking about, uh, the new reader, you know, cause I've heard people try to, you know, be given crisis as, and here's a, cl- a must read and they just don't get it. They just don't care. It's just uh, the readers these days are totally different. They expect different things. They kind of look at that and it's like too, it's too much. So you're right. I think back then it didn't matter. It was more compelling for us to kind of seek out these things and try to figure out stuff. Same thing with Legion. You're totally right. I don't know. Look, I love Invasion. I think that's a classic. I love Armageddon 2001. I think that's great. Oh my gosh. I love that. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's absolutely fun. It is an awesome what if comic. Totally, you know? totally, totally. My, my point is that they, just carries yeah, I just think rap. they're kind of flawed too. They all have, you could, you could analyze these things with the microscope and it's there, you find flaws in everything, right? So I just think, yeah. I don't know. What, what about Marvel? You know, no one talks about the Marvel crossovers. I mean, Secret. Well, some people do. It's just that we they they have their own podcast. But right. yeah, Secret Wars, I love. In fact, Secret Wars was my gateway. Sure, to Secret Wars too. Uh, well, no, not so much. Uh, there are people that love it though. There are people that defend it, much like your misguided defense of Malone. <laughs> I think what it, I think what it boils down to is, forgive me, but I think you are looking a little bit through nostalgic glasses. Now, I my defense would be two things. One is that I re- I lived these things. I was in the mm-hmm. trenches. And even back then, I didn't like Millennial. It's not one of those like years later kind of thing where I came back and went, oh, like like Secret Wars. Everyone loved Secret Wars back then. Now it's got a bad mm-hmm. reputation for being a, a toy comic, you know, just right. toys. But back then, I loved it. And to this day, I, I can't help it. I'm unabashedly right. biased. I love Secret Wars. I don't care what criticism people say. By the way, there's an awesome Secret Wars podcast on the Pulp to Pixel podcast network. You guys should check it out. It's awesome. Anyway, but even even back in the day, I recognized Millennium as not being entertaining. The same thing about Genesis. You, the, the joke when we were talking about joking about mm-hmm, Genesis mm-hmm. earlier, 
at the time, I didn't like Genesis either. And I think it's, I don't know, I guess that's, I said there's two defenses. I don't really have I just, stuff. yeah. But I did want to, I, I did want to touch on two things you said earlier mm-hmm. real quick. I'm going to, I'm going to sidetrack for just a second. One was you talked about, uh, Engelhart introducing AIDS, which is really interesting because Marvel wouldn't let Bill Mantlo do that in Alpha Flight at the same time. Mm. So it's interesting that DC did let them do it. Cause you know, um, Bill Mantlo wrote this storyline where North Star got AIDS, but once more, and he was sick for months and finally they're going to realize AIDS and Marvel's like, wait, what? What are you doing? No, <laughs> oh, no, man. no, 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 no. That's not happening. So he had to tell this whole other story about how uh, Northstar was sick because he was an elf living in our dimension. It was a bunch of crap. He had to retcon to fix where they wouldn't. I know it was horrible. And the other thing I want to point out, you talk about how Engelhart created these culturally different characters and you should get credit for that. And that's kind of cool. Well, just a couple years before that, though, Conway created Vibe, a culturally different character, and he's still getting slammed for that creation. Yeah, because, I mean, Conway, yeah, I like him and all, but he kind of wrote him as a kind of goofy stereotype. Same as New Guardians. I, I don't. Okay, that's the point I'm making. Know, that's the thing, but at least, but you got to give him credit to, for at least creating Vibe, for at least trying to have that portion of the yep. readership represented. Back then, there was like nothing. You know, you could yep. go and read Love and Rockets, and that's a great, that's one of my biggest influences. That's a great bullet proof comic mm-hmm. without stereotypes they just represent characters almost as human beings like they're just real vibe is almost like the cartoonish mockery of that but, but in okay. the scope of a mainstream comic that's a big deal you don't have to like those issues i personally like those issues i like chuck Patton and i, I like what came afterwards i love them i love, love jail detroit i love those issues you read them you wince a little you wince a lot actually they're not great but you got to give him a little credit just for at least trying. You know what I mean? So yeah. I get it. His mandate was to compete with Teen Titans and X Men, and that's what he was trying right. to do. And uh, and he and he succeeded, I guess. In in his own way. We now we were back on Millennium there. You were you were giving I think your final your final defense here. Sir, no, my thing. Millennium. I mean, look, Millennium is just not as terrible as it's painted to be. I just don't get it. You know, it's like it's like everyone agreed to anoint one punching bag, like one piñata. You know, over right. any other any other crossover would have fit the bill. Millennium is just, I don't know, like you said, it's low-hanging fruit. It's I, I personally think it's just outside of my nostalgia. I think it's an ambitious project that, okay, you know, got a little bloated. But I think the hate it receives is so disproportionate to the quality of the actual material, especially, especially when measured against other crossovers, you know, and I'm not even talking about Genesis. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the lowest rung of crossovers, just everything, just the scope of all the crossovers. I just don't think, I just, it's not a fair criticism. I think it's critically irresponsible to dim- to dismiss something that met its mega event objectives, you know, so like honoring each title's voice, introducing characters, even though they were kind of weird and stereotypical, and to entertain children. Like, imagine that. Like, they, they didn't entertain you because you were a 16-year-old reader, a seasoned reader at that time who had, like, your own critical code or standard. But yeah, a year later, DC would put DC Comics aren't just for kids anymore all over their ads and covers and stuff. And they were right, but a lot of them were kids. You know, I was there. Mm-hmm. I, I know. I was there, you know, like Millennium was awesome to me. And I wasn't your typical Wednesday warrior consumer. Like I said, I would go to Seven <laughs> Eleven or, or Walden Books. You know, going to the comic shop was like a rare special treat for me. That's where I found new comics and back issues. My allowance wasn't that big. I didn't need to buy every crossover. What 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 did what was Millennium like? Forty something crossover titles. My oh, collection at least. Yeah, I I didn't feel like I need to buy all that stuff. I didn't care. I wanted the main issues and the titles that I regularly bought, and that was it. That was fine. So as a consumer, it wasn't frustrating because I still enjoyed the comics I did have. You know, I didn't have a full run of anything. It was a spotty collection, but I got a lot of joy out of them. You know, it helped shape, like you said, it helped shape the very thing I've dedicated my life to doing. 
It's just it's just <laughs> that small thing. And I, you know, Millennium was definitely a part of that. And I just I hate hearing it bashed. So I had to defend it. I don't know if I convinced anyone because you hate what you hate and it, for good reasons. And I just think it just needed a little love thrown its way because with or without context, it's a product of a creative team, a company, a corporate entity. If you think about that, like DC was corporate even back then, but it's a creative team who took a creative risk and that's valuable. I mean, that's also, that's really rare, especially today. It's super rare. You know what I mean? And so it's up to us yeah. as fans, as the true custodians of these legends to, to not ridicule such efforts, you know, but to, to champion them instead. And I don't know. That's, it's just my take on it. Uh, plus it had a really nice cover dress too, I think. I, lo- I do love the circle with a line, the horizontal lines on each comic. It d- immediately tells you it's Millennium without being too distracting or having some giant, you know, explosive logo that says, you know, like invasion or right. something. It looks no, it's nice. slick, it's well elegant, but but honestly, I mean, that's that's my overall point. Like without risks, like you wouldn't have things like the, the you know the sacred cows, like Dark Knight Returns or Watchmen. Those, I, I, I mean, those are fan favorites, but you know, DC especially, they took risks. They they produced things that fell flat, and some of them worked, and some of them are some of our favorite comic books you know like for real classics and i think that's just kind of rare i think we should i don't know be careful and not careful but we should we should just honor that you know we should be open to such i don't know a boldness i think and i think the millennium comes from such boldness it may have not been the best but i think it, it comes from the creative spirit that i think sparked a lot of the classics that we now love so I, I got to say, you made a very compelling argument, and I mean that genuinely. As much as I like to take the Mickey out of my guests, I'm being honest here. I don't. You haven't changed my opinion on the story, the comics themselves. However, I will say you have shifted my position. I feel like you put a face, a real world, a real life face on this book. Uh, the creators behind it, the work they put into it, the effort, the the risks, as you said, and all of that. And it it does make me realize, you know, I I, I do take the low hanging fruit, the joke, and pick on it. I can't promise that I won't ever take a knock at it again when I'm doing a who's who issue and I just want to make fun of somebody. <laughs> but it does sort of, it makes you rethink its positioning and how brave it was to do that. And like you said, no one starts out with the effort of going, I'm going to try and make a crappy comic. Right. Thing. Everyone puts their best foot forward given the circumstances they have. It's just like at your own job, whoever you are, you know, people at home, whatever your job might be, and you work on a project and it doesn't quite turn out as successful as you want it, but you got it right. done by deadline. Right. And, you know, that happens in comics too. So I, I would say you have shifted my feelings on it without making me love the story more. Is that Oh, uh, my fair? job is done. I can't believe I even did okay. that. I thought I was just going to run up against the wall for sure. And that's fine. You know, it, that's this is awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, I've lost all respect for you as a human being. I don't, However, I don't think you ever had it. You have shifted with. my I mean, you asked me on the show to begin with, so. <laughs> It's fine. I have kind of set a precedent yeah, for that, yes, I suppose. Yes. Huh? <laughs> well, since we're laughing, you know, let, let's take this opportunity to move forward to something and talk about some humor as we're going to talk about the coveted uh, Wahaha Award. And this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a soundbite for that and everything. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wahaha Award. This is the part where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both Michelle and I are going to nominate a particular scene, and one of them, we're going to hash it out, and one of them will be given the coveted Wahaha Award. Michelle, as the guest, do you want to go first? My, I mean, this was a tough one because it's just, it's got so many good jokes, but Hawkman mocking Hawkwoman in his Thoth Why, thank you, Superman. That was perfect. That was so awesome. 
And it's still so funny over all the other stuff. So I, that's going to be my nomination. Interesting. I read that scene differently. Equally as funny, but I read it differently. Hold on. I'm trying to find it. Where Hawkman... What page is that on? It's page 13. Okay, let me get to that. Folks, if you so have a like, book at home, you got to go to it here. Oh, do you have or, Do you have the issue or do you have the trade? Oh, Michelle. It's so sad. Oh, no. You copy. have your digital. Uh, no, I know. Right. I have the hard copy issue in front of me. I have the Justice League Secret Gospel of Maxwell Lord physical collection, and I have the digital version from Comicsology. It's a sickness. It is. It's. It's too many versions. I have them all. Oh, you know what? I have misread this scene the whole time. He is. Mo- <laughs> you're right. Hawkman is mocking Hawkgirl because it's got an exclamation point when he says, "Why, thank you, Superman." In my mind, I thought it had a question mark. And I thought it was more like, uh, is she flirting with Superman? Is how I always read it all these years. Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes sense. That would, I that would, read it that the totally other way. just shifts the, the tone of how it for sure. Funny. No, so, I thought it was, okay. I thought it was like a weird, petty, uh, really human thing that, uh, and it doesn't have to be there. That little balloon does not have to be there at all, but it's right. there okay. and it's great. All right. Well, that's, uh, that is even funnier than the way I had imagined it. Okay. And then my pick is got to be the introduction of Nort. Uh, regardless of your feelings on it uh this is an important moment in jli history it's it's two pages so it's not really it's it's, it's a bit of a cheat because it's not one moment but it's two pages of stuff and, you know how's reaction i talked about it already we, we talked about all the the banter and superman and, and guarding the john the bathroom and all that stuff that's my nomination is the introduction of north so oh yeah that's a total cheat but whatever it's your show <laughs> It's my show. I can cheat. So we're at a a crossroads here, sir. We have to make a decision who is going home with the coveted Blahaha Award. Come on. Manhunter is still around. Superman's still around. Shira Hall is not with us. Let's honor the dead. (sighs) You know, Come on. Urgh. All right. You know, I do love, I have, I have a, first of all, I have a huge weakness for redheads. Um, my wife is actually redheaded. I, I'm a sucker for any redheaded character in comics. Jean Grey, you know, Shara Hall, Cinnamon, it doesn't matter. You know, I, Wilma Flintstone, whatever. They're all hot to me. So, uh, she, she's got my heart and it is a funny bit. And whether you read it with the exclamation point where he's mocking her or you read it with a question mark where he's jealous of her or being jealous, either way, it works. So, okay. You, you've once again talked me into it. You've put my, my metaphysical arm behind my ship back and, and twisted it. <laughs> we will grant Hawkman and Hawkwoman the coveted Bwahaha Award. Congratulations, Hawks. The award is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Yay. <laughs> oh, you're such a bully. Oh, my gosh. All right. Actually, I need to ask a favor of you. Um, Nort, I just got a message. Nort is at the front desk of our embassy here, and he keeps bothering what? the staff. I know. He's asking where the bathroom is, apparently. You know, it's all tied into this issue. Actually, he keeps asking where the John is while he's doing the pee-pee dance in the lobby. Oh, come would on. Mind taking, would you mind taking him to the bathroom? No, doesn't he have, like, a diaper or something? Doesn't he have, like, a doggy diaper? You could just uh, well, use? there's probably a fire hydrant outside. You could just take him to that if you fine, want. Fine, fine, fine. Let me take, yeah, I'll right, take care thank of it. You. Folks, while he's getting that squared away, I'm going to go ahead and read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Law. Alright folks, let's get right into it. And uh, I want to say I hope your 2017 has gotten off to a great start. And well, let's face it, you're listening to this show, so you've done something right this year so far. Now, you've probably already noticed by this point I've added some music to the background of the feedback section. I figured, you know what, it's just me talking by myself, thought I might jazz up the place a little bit, and adding music in the background will really frustrate our friend Martin Gray at the Scottish Embassy, so that's fun for me. Alright, a little bit of news for you. 
If you love the JLI, I bet there's a good chance you love the comic book miniseries Legends as well. I know I do. And I can't recommend enough that you head over to the Views from the Longbox podcast and listen to Michael Bailey's extensive coverage of Legends and all the crossovers. I mean, this thing went across four episodes. It is very, very, very long, but it's excellent. It's very well worth it. I actually appear on three of the four episodes, so I can wholly endorse those three episodes. The other one, well, it's Andrew Leyland, so, you know, it's a bit of a gamble. <laughs> anyway, check it out, viewsmallonbox.com. It's really exceptional. It's really fun to sort of live in that time period again when Legends took place. Last thing I want to mention is if you are planning to go to the Heroes Convention in Charlotte, North Carolina in June 2017, please let me know. I'm actually going. It's going to be my first year attending. There's a lot of folks from the Fire and Water Podcast Network community, friends, podcasters, just folks that we know through the web that are going to be going as well. Would love to hear if any of y'all are going there as well. All right. As I mentioned before, if you want to participate in the social medias and comment on Millennium or anything about this issue, please use the hashtag PoundFWPodcasts or tag us on Twitter. It's JLI Podcast. On Facebook, it's Just Like International Blahaha Podcast. As I said before, it's really about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, if you're outside the United States, let me know, and we'll assign you the appropriate embassy. And it's good to know, too, because when I'm doing the iTunes reviews, I have to like filter specifically to certain countries, and it just helps me see that. Speaking of which, let's talk about some iTunes reviews. Folks, I say it every month, and I really, really mean it. These iTunes reviews are so critical to helping us find new listeners. Because every time you give us an iTunes review, uh, whether it's a written review or just the little stars, it helps raise the profile of the show. Other people find the show, and we get new folks who join our JLI community. So my way of saying thank you is I read your entire review on the air. And in fact, we got three new iTunes reviews this month, so let's get right into those. From our friends Darren and Ruth Sutherland from the RAD, or RAD, Adventures Network. They host podcasts including Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. They write in to say, Extreme League Love. The infectious enthusiasm of the irredeemable Shag makes it impossible not to like this podcast. His love for this era and the Justice League is obvious, and his coverage of each issue is fun and comprehensive. He recruits great guests, making each episode unique and full of smiles and laughs. Aw, thank you, Darren and Ruth. Really appreciate that. Heard from, and, and I don't know who this is, and by the way, if, the, if you are J-Bone1, yeah, that's that's our iTunes name, J-Bone1, if that's you, please write in and let me know. This review cracked me up. He wrote in, Gateway Drug. JLI Bwahaha Podcast was my gateway drug into the podcast world. Sure, I'd seen the cool kids with their headphones and their smart devices, but I was a good, clean citizen. Then I found out there was this podcast about my favorite comic ever, JLI. Shag does such an amazing job with the show, I soon found myself fiending for episode after episode, needing my fix. I sold all my worldly possessions to get just one more download, until I discovered they were free. And not just JLI either. I started in on the hard stuff. All the other Fire and Water Network podcasts? Sure, my family left me, and I'm typing this as I huddle in the closet at the rehab center center, hoping the orderlies don't find me, but I do love the JLI podcast and the fun, exciting adventures each episode takes me on. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Heard from Mike Atchison, and sorry, Mike, if I'm mispronouncing your last name. He says, finally, the podcast I've been waiting for. The mid to late 80s were for me and my comic reading, The Camelot Years, and Justice League was a huge part of it. I'm a little late to the game, as I've just discovered the Fire and Water Podcast Network, which led to my discovery of this podcast, but your humor and thoroughness in your coverage is a complete joy to listen to. Thank you. Oh, appreciate that, Mike. And we're going to hear from Mike again a little bit in the comments section. That's it for iTunes reviews this month. Remember, please go out to iTunes if you haven't left a review. We've got quite a few out there, but every review helps. The rest of the comments are going to come from our website, our email, social media, 
pulling bits and pieces from different places. And again, a great place to leave comments is over on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. Go over to the JLI show and you'll see episode 10. Leave your comments there. All the comments I'm going to read here are specific to JLI number 9, Coverage with Little Chad Bogleman. Thomas Favi writes, I don't know what it is, but I always love evil robots like the Manhunters and Sentinels. Well, Thomas, I worry about your family's safety. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey from our Irish Embassy. He says, Can someone please get Nort? As someone has given him a bone and he's now digging up the Embassy Gardens to bury it. (laughs) Uh, He goes on to say, To be honest, I'm not sure about the hate for Millennium. Sure, it's no Angels, but it's a good Robbie Williams song, and I love the use of the James Bond arrangement in it, and, oh, you're not talking about the song. Well, I haven't seen the series, but I enjoyed Chris Carter's X-Files, and I heard that it was in a similar but darker vein. Oh, it's not the TV series you're talking about? It's the comic series? Oh. (laughs) I love Jimmy. He gets me. Thank you. He goes on to say, well, despite being attached to the Millennium crossover, it was still a fun issue to read. Given the choices, Rocket Red Number 7 was probably the best option to go with for a traitor. It's a pity there was no lead-up to allow us to know Rocket Red 7 before he was revealed to be a traitor, but at least it did speed up the introduction of Dimitri to the team. Then he he goes on with some minor nitpicks for the issue. He says, In Millennium, both Captain Adam and Oberon, for some strange reason, was with the JLI when they met the Guardians and the Zamorans at the Green Lantern Corps headquarters. However, for some reason, they did not stay with the team when they left and were in New York. Did the team drop them off in New York before heading to Europe? Or was Captain Adam sent home to fix the mess with the electrical wiring he made in that issue? Hmm, good question. And then, speaking of Europe, he says, why was the JLI going to Europe? They had just heard the news about the Millennium Project, and John decided it was the right time to check out the embassy? You would have thought it had been better to go back to New York and wait for instructions on protecting the Chosen. Also, what flight plane were they traveling to get to Europe? It looks like they were going over the desert for most of their flight. Those are really good observations I did not pick up on. Now, the earlier one about the Millennium comic itself, it's because I didn't reread Millennium for this series. That was a purposeful choice. But great observations. And regarding the Bwahaha moment, he'd like to give special mention to when Rocket Red locked the JLI in the ship and Scott is trying to get the door open. Batman barks at Scott, We hired you because you can work miracles, mister. So get do it! To which Scott replied, Was that a play on words? <laughs> that is a very good one. I like that. Then we're here from Michael Bailey. He's a past guest on this show. He's the host of the From Crisis to Crisis podcast. He writes reviews for the Superman homepage, and he does views from the long box, which we mentioned earlier with the Legends crossover. And um, guess what crossover he's looking to cover in 2017? Yeah. I think you can guess. He's got a big job ahead of him, folks. Anyway, he goes on to say, I love the many and varied guests. Chad's perspective was great, and I like that while you had some bad things to say about Millennium, it didn't turn into a vicious beatdown of an episode. I think Millennium is one of those crossovers where the issues dealing with the story are better than the main series. At least I hope that's the case, especially at the start of next year. Yeah, Mike, uh, I'd be real interested to hear what you think of Michelle and I's discussion about Millennium this episode. Then Chris Franklin wrote in from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the Supermates Podcast, the Power Records Podcast, the Batman Nightcast Podcast, and he's a past guest on this show. He writes, Agree that while Millennium's pretty bad as far as crossovers go, the concept of the sleeper agents was solid. Now, in some cases, shoehorning them into the title's mythos was a bit rough. Lana Lang in the entire town of Smallville, anyone? But this JLI issue was one of the best. The Rocket Red actually attempting to get the JLI to see his point of view was a truly refreshing take as well. The end where Maxwell Lord's secretary shoots him and then nonchalantly pops her bubblegum? Well, that blew my young mind. Talk about a shocker. Then we heard from Sean, who goes by Dead Robin on the Pulp the Pixel podcast network. He does the Astro City podcast. He also does the Secret Wars podcast, which I am currently in love with. He says, 
I have to side with Shag in the blah-ha-ha moment. The fogged-up window bit with the beetle is classic. That's some top-notch Ted Cord strategy right there. Did you see that Kevin McGuire did the art for the most recent issue of Guardians of the Galaxy, issue number 14? He even drew Peter Quill with an O-face. I did not see that, Sean. I'm going to have to check that out now. He goes on to say, I thought the bit with Guy's personality switch was funny when I was a kid, but now it just feels mean. Did the members of the JLI not know that Guy had brain damage? See the earlier Green Lantern issues. The mouse episode might have been a brain bleed, and they were blah ha all the way to the ICU. Messed up, man. Like, it wasn't enough that Guy had to watch Hal steal his girl while he was trapped in the Phantom Zone. <laughs> you make some very good points. Poor Guy. <laughs> he really didn't get treated very well, did he? And then Sean goes on to say, And Joe Staten is just full of Hanna-Barbera as viewed through a crack pipe mode at this point. His art is both cartoony and creepy. In his defense, though, he would change his style dramatically in the near future for the underrated Huntress series. And then Paul in KC, which I have to assume is Kansas City, Paul writes in to say, I love the Huntress. You know what, Paul? I do too, and I'm looking forward to when she shows up in JLI. Then we heard from Paul Hicks from the Australian Embassy in the Waiting for Doom podcast. He says, Everything's coming up Millennium right now, Shag. You may not know this, but Jay and Roy covered the Captain Adam chapter over on their Silver and Gold podcast. Yes, Paul. I get it. Thank you. Paul's taking a dig at me because... Uh, yes, the Silver and Gold podcast did cover the Millennium crossover recently, and I was on the episode, and I didn't bother to mention it. However, in my own defense, both the segment with Chad and the segment with Michelle were recorded a long time before I recorded the Millennium episode with the Silver and Gold podcast guy, so I apologize. But yes, please, go out and check out the Silver and Gold podcast. They covered the Captain Adam issue of the Millennium crossover. They were kind enough to have me on the show, and I think we had a pretty good time. Up next is Jose Rivera. He says, Millennium as a whole wasn't very exciting. Whenever I think of it, my eyes glaze over and my brain checks out. I get that way around tie-in issues because they always interrupt the main story, and you're stuck with it until the event's over. Now, some comics do the best they can with the tie-in, and I think both Millennium and Invasion JLI did a fantastic job. But when I see a banner announcing it's part of a huge event, I instantly groan. Man, I'm glad comics don't get interrupted by numerous comic events anymore. <laughs> Good point, Jose. Good point. Then we heard from David Ace Gutierrez. He's the executive producer of the Pod Dylan podcast. He says, The help bit was another example of acting brilliance by Kevin McGuire and company. And you know what this book did? It made me look up the work of Nikolai Gogol and Pavlovian responses. See? You can learn from comics. You know what, David? Knowing is half the battle. Then we heard again from Mike Atchison, the gentleman who left the iTunes review. He shared with us his comic book JLI origin story. And folks, I love origin stories. If you haven't shared yours with me, please write in and share it. He says, I've been reading and collecting comics almost exclusively DC since the mid-70s. My secret origin is sort of unique in that I was first exposed to comics because of my uncle, who worked at the World Color Press Plant in Sparta, Illinois, where all comic books were printed for decades. He used to bring my brother and I a stack of comics every couple months. He must have brought me mostly DC because that's what I really gravitated to as I got old enough to start buying my own comics. It was a wonderful time. I cut my teeth on the original Justice League of America series, eventually collecting them all. Of course, the Silver and Bronze Ages were great for what they were, but by the time the 80s came around, I was a teenager and I learned from titles such as New Teen Titans, Swamp Thing, and others just how sophisticated comics could be. So when Crisis hit the stands and the subsequent Legends miniseries, my collecting was in full stride. However, my original love of the JLA had waned. I loved Jerry Conway's earlier work in the JLA and, of course, Firestorm, but the Detroit era didn't do much for me. So when I had seen the first ad for the Justice League inviting me to see their return to greatness, I literally got goosebumps. Their proclamation, we're tough, we're proud, we're the all-new Justice League, was music to my ears. What is really amazing is that it did absolutely nothing to prepare me for the humor that was in store for me. And as you have said, it wasn't just Giffen and DiMatteis' humor and McGuire's awesome facial expressions and postures, it was a perfect balance of humor and drama. 
Then he goes on to say, something else I'd like to share with you. Def Leppard's Hysteria album also came out in 1987, and their song Rocket was one of my favorites. Mostly because in my head I was hearing Rocket Red, when the lyrics were actually saying, Rocket! Yeah! Yeah, I love Def Leppard. Dude, I, this is Shag. I saw them in concert during the Hysteria album. I had the whole shredded jeans thing going, like Joe Elliott did, you know, with like, I don't know, a hundred slits in the jeans on both sides. I had the long hair going on. I was totally into it, brother. Anyway, he goes on to say, so to this day, Rocket Red and the Justice League come to mind when I hear that song, and yes, I still sing, Rocket Red! <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. Then we heard from our buddy Tim Price, who always leaves great comments. He says, there's one panel I never understood until now. In the fight with the Rocket Red, after Canary kicks him, the panel on the next page has kind of an awkward pose with Rocket Red's hand on Canary's neck which is a weird way to knock her out. But that's not the goal. It finally clicked. He's cuffing her throat to disable her canary cry. They didn't make a big deal about it, just part of the fight. How many years have I been rereading this book and didn't quite put that together? Is it just me or I didn't realize that? I hope it wasn't just me. Now, this is this is Shag here. Tim, you're not alone. I did not pick up on that either. I just checked the panel. You're right. It is sort of a weird choking-like moment. And uh, yeah, that's absolutely what's going on. And you're right. They didn't dwell on it. So every time I see more Kevin McGuire, I'm always impressed. Now, let's see what else. Tim Price goes on to say, I also love that McGuire makes the hair of his characters move. It's probably been noted before that it's common for hair to be like a helmet and never change. But oh no, Guy's hair is always moving, especially with all the flying he does this issue. Love it. And then Tim about gave me a heart attack. He says, looking forward to episode 10 where Millenniac finishes, but Nort! And we reach the halfway point for McGuire's art. What? Really? And then he breaks it down for me. Issues 1 through 12, there's Kevin McGuire. Issues 16 and 8 through 18 are McGuire, 23 through 25, and 60. That's a total of 19 issues. That's it. Ah! I, I guess I never really did the math on it. I mean, intuitively, I knew McGuire only drew so many issues, right? I didn't realize it was so few as only being 19 issues. Oh my gosh. Yes, that is extremely depressing. Now, there is some amazing artwork to come. I'm not sure changing the further artists, but that is sort of shocking to realize we've already reached the halfway point of Kevin McGuire's involvement with the JLI. Ugh. Thanks, Tim. Really appreciate that sleepless night. All right, up next is Mark Lax. He says, with the shooting of Maxwell Lord in issue number nine, I'm reminded how complicated this character is. At first, he's the antagonist. Then he becomes a bad guy, and then he becomes sort of a good guy. After a while, we get used to this character and his back-and-forth demeanor and even come to like him. Now, flash forward to 2006. Did we see this coming? I suppose if you really follow Max from the beginning, some may not be surprised as to the direction DC took him. But does knowing this outcome affect the way you read this series, meaning JLI? I say no. We have to remember Infinite Crisis was 20 years away, and something that wouldn't even be a glimmer until the early 2000s. This Maxwell Lord, I believe, was never meant to go in a very dark direction that he went. So, reading these books, I put the future Max to the back of my mind and just enjoy the awesomeness. Thanks, Mark. That's a really interesting way to look at it. I kind of like that sort of headcanon version. My own personal headcanon, the way I do it, is I follow the Justice League 3000 version of the history. And if you haven't read Justice League 3000, people, come on. I talk about it almost every month. Seriously? It's by Giffen and Demetrius. It features the JLI characters. If you haven't read these comics, it's not my fault. I've been doing my part, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, their version is basically saying that history diverged just before Infinite Crisis. History went one way and went Infinite Crisis, and their version went another way, which which then led you to, like, you know, formerly known as the Justice League. I can't believe it's not the Justice League. Justice League 3000. So you get Ted Kord still alive. You get Sue still alive. All these things, and, and, the, and the stories go on in that direction. You still have kind of the Super Buddies feel to it. So that's kind of where my headcanon for the Justice League International goes. All right. Then we heard from Jay Jones from the Silver and Gold podcast. He also does the Wild Pod, which is a wild dog podcast, which is what he's talking about in his notes here. He goes, on a serious note, 
That's like three episodes in a row that you've mentioned Wild Dog Shag. Time for you to unclassify him as a mort and give him his due credit. He's a badass who won't stay down. I don't see your nuclear man in a regular monthly series. Thank you, Jay. Uh, if it's any consolation, Jay, I uh, was shopping in the quarter bins today, and I found Wild Dog number one, so I picked it up and then immediately realized I spent too much money on it. Then over on Twitter, I uh, want to give a shout out to, oh, this guy named Michelle Fife. I don't know who this is. Anyway, he posted three new sketches that included JLI members with Martian Manhunter, Mr. Miracle, and Dr. Light. And he says, Dr. Light was on the team for like three seconds, which totally counts. <laughs> then we hear from our buddy Matthew Thomas Cody regarding issue number nine. He says, Guy Gardner should wake up and put a moon boot on the Rocket Red Manhunter's ass. <laughs> By the way, that comes from a man who's confident enough to actually get a Guy Gardner haircut. So thank you, Matthew. Then we heard from, and I'm going to say this wrong, Christopher Gronlund, he just discovered the podcast, and he's very excited to listen to it. So I hope you're enjoying it, Christopher. Then we heard from H. Daniel Rebolt. Probably said his name wrong as well. He says, love the show. And you know what, Daniel? This is the show that loves you back. Then we heard from Marcus Soroyas. He says, regarding issue number 10, he goes, this is the one I've been waiting for the most. Well, Marcus, I hope we didn't let you down. Then just a few quick shout outs, some folks who I got some very nice comments from. Uh, Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog over the Scottish Embassy. Ali Almedia. James Ryan. Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade podcast. Um, <laughs> Ostracos1, who on Twitter also goes by We Term Eve Chili Tank or Amleach View Trinket. I have no idea who you are, what your real name is, but you crack me up with your stuff. Her from Mick Mars from Trick or Treat Radio. And finally, my podcasting life mate, Rob Kelly. Now, on to the folks who shared this show on their own social media timeline on Facebook or Twitter. Folks, I, I say it every month. I do mean it. It's a long list of names. I get it. However, these folks showed their support and helped promote the show on their own timelines. I mean, they either retweeted or shared or whatever. So I think it's really important we recognize these individuals. And our community is growing. This time out, we're looking at nearly 80 names. So buckle in, folks. Here we go. Our thanks to Professor Alan Middleton, Andrew in Belfast, Bad Touch Dr. Light, Barry Reese, Bat Chaparak, Between the Pages, Brad Dade, Colm Nauer, Cash Flag, Chad Bogleman, Charlton Hero, Chris Franklin, Closeout Comics, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Insurance, Comic Reflections, Cosmic Cat Comics, Dallas Gibson, David Bayer Jr., Decca Black, Denise91, Diablo Frank, Frederico Hernandez, Film and Water Podcast, Firestorm Fan, hey, that's me, FKA Jason, Geek Brain Popcast, Gene Hendricks, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Gloria Ann Walthor, H.J. Lua at Comic Blinks, Jared West, Jason Ball Z, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremiah Parker, Justice's First Dawn, Kichi Baker, Con L, Cord Industries, Laurel at Mountain Flower, Longbox Crusade, Luke Dobb, Mark Lax, Martin Gray, Matthias McBride, Michael Bailey, Mike Peacock, Ali Almedia, Once Upon a Geek, oh hey, that's me again, Pat Sampson, Pod Dylan. Rad Adventures Network, which is Ruth and Darren Sutherland. Resurrections, and Adam Warlock Podcast. Rob Kelly. Rod Pruitt. Rolled Spine Podcast. Ryan Daly. Silver and Gold Podcast. Siskoid. Stephen Bird. Super Rolly. The 108th Sage. The Aquaman Shrine. The Lantern Cast. The Washer 92241. Tim Price. Treasury Comics. Trekker Talk. Ugly Christmas Sweater. Unearthly Visions. Vishnu Ganon, Waiting for Doom, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warlord Worlds, Wild Dog Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Yard Sale Artist. Woof! 
My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback has been such a critical part of the success of this show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is fantastic. And if I've forgotten anyone, I really apologize. And it was probably Chad's fault anyway. So just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. Please, please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. The best way to leave comments is over at our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You'll be able to see all the posts there. Go up to episode number 10. Leave your comments. Love to hear from you, folks. You can also find us on Facebook at the Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. On Twitter, it's JLI Podcast. And our email is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to little Chad Bokelman for helping me cover Justice League International number 9. Such a great collection of feedback from that episode, guys. You are awesome. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, hopefully Michelle will have taken care of our little Nort problem. Trekker Talk, a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We'll be discussing the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series, as well as having side conversations about other areas of fandom. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back streets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Trekker Talk is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at trekkertalk.com. Crippled scientist with a short temper and a chair built for action. The bandaged man and woman and the sentient energy that connects them even as it tears them apart. A woman with multiple personalities and a different superpower for each one. A redneck who can see the future, but only 60 seconds at a time. The street that travels the world with fabulous style. The actress trying not to play the role of a freak. Hot hands. A boy who swims, flies, crawls or runs like a beast. Eight-faced girl who has imaginary friends with the capacity for unimaginable terror. The fifth richest man in the world and the mind games he plays. An Indian woman who controls fire and ice but never the team she leads. Man who is a robot. We doubt there are stranger things than the heroes of the Doom Patrol, but join us on Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, and hear for yourself. Okay, folks, we're back from break, and let's see. Michelle went to see a man about a dog, and oh yeah, he is back. Hey, how's it oh, going? That's man? a good boy. That's a good boy. That's a good. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Here, let me put this uh, jar of peanut butter away. Hold on. <laughs> That'll keep him licking for a while. Michelle, I just want to say thank you for appearing on this episode of the show. You know, we have a lot of fun in the show. We we talk, we, we celebrate these comics, but this is the first time we've actually had a comics professional on the show, and uh, it just it, it means the world to us to have you here. In fact, why don't you take a second to tell the folks at home some of the works you've published, some of the comics they can read, and then where to find your stuff. Well, the main thing I do is Copra, which is sort of like my serialized Suicide Squad weirdo take, which is up to... Uh, issue 28, 29, I'm release. I release those myself, so you could, uh, you know, subscribe to that. I offer subscriptions, which I, I mail to you, 
if you subscribe with some perks on the side. And uh, you oh, can also cool. get the collections, which is available. They're available through the Diamond Catalog. So your store should not have trouble finding this, uh, the books. And it's you can also, also get it on, yeah, I was going to say, Comixology, yeah. Yeah, I uh, recently put up the first 18 issues on Comixology and with more issues to come. So if you're a digital guy, you just want to test it out, so read the first issue, see what you think, dive in. I think for fans of like old school Frank Miller, Inc. by Klaus Janssen, I think they're going to like this. Guys that like Old Suicide Squad or Walt Simonson or Steve Dicko. Yeah, those are my huge influences. I try to channel all that into this one full-color 24-page an issue thing. It's a unit. I love the issue. So I try to make it as special as possible. I think that's, if you're into that sort of stuff, you're going to love Cobra. You know, it works both ways. You know, it's, it's got like art fan, like indie art guys like it and they've never read superhero comics and then old school superhero comics uh, fans like it because it just hits all those right buttons. So it's a, it's a good combination. Give it a shot. Read the first issue. Tell me what you think. And you can find that at my website. Uh, I have links to everything there. So it's michellefifed.com. Or you could hit me up on any social media. I'll be there. I know I'm, I'm accessible. I'll, you know, we'll talk about old Jim Aparo comics. I'll do that till I die. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I hope it hasn't been too much of a pain for you. No, it's great. It's been fun. We great. appreciate you coming to the Defense of Millennium, something no one else would do, and, sir, you acquitted yourself quite well. Awesome. Well, next time I'll have to defend uh, Dark Knight Strikes again. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Give, I me, mean, give me 20 minutes on that. Seriously? I'll, I'll, oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. are a glutton for punishment, <laughs> sir. <laughs> <laughs> but that's for another time, seriously. No one wants to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. No one wants to. Oh, yeah. No man escapes the manhunt. <laughs> Nice. Very nice. All right, folks. Come back next month when we're going to cover Justice League International number 11. We're on the path. We're starting to learn about Maxwell Lord finally, folks. It's going to be exciting. And we'll have another guest host to cover the issue with me. Who it'll be? Sorry, you'll just have to wonder for the next month. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Michelle. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? Nord Esplanade Niesmacher, Green Lantern of Space Sector X minus 5267 point 2. Ow! Yeah, go ahead. Tell him why you're in the brig. Well, I, I came down to bring him lunch and uh, I locked myself in.